Hello again, friends, and you are my friends, and welcome to another edition of 605, the super podcast, the only podcast on Turner time, the mothership. Oh, for Christ's sake, you do it here too. The best wrestling podcast on the planet, the only wrestling podcast that matters, call somebody. I am your host, the great Brian Last. It's me! The hardest working man in wrestling podcasts. Yeah! Baby, baby. What are you trying to prove? And I am joined here for the 100th episode of the Super Podcast by clearly our most popular co-host, the man who is also the anchor of the In the News Desk, your friend and mine, Mr. Jim Cornette. Jim, welcome back to the Super Podcast. Oh, for fuck's sake, this fucking thing took longer than Boston's third album. What is the third album? I know the first album. I know the second album. Which one was the third album? The third one, it, the one that took the longest. Any hits on that album? Well, they're all hits. It's Boston, but he takes for fucking ever, and so do you. They're not all hits, and I do take forever, and my apologies. They're all, and name a song that Boston ever issued or inseminated out into the world that was not a hit. I could only name, like, two songs because they were both the hits. Oh, good Christ. Oh, my God. More than a feeling. Right? Everyone would go to that first. Foreplay Long Time. I don't know that song. Yes, it's been a long time. It's been a long time since you've listened to the radio, apparently. Are you going to pollute my show now with your music stylings? Now, hey, you watch out about the pollution of my stylings. (laughs) I'll have to know I keep my stylings clean and numbered for just such an occasion. Well, it has taken a little while for this episode to come out because there's been a lot of things going on behind the scenes and a lot of moving parts in terms of putting this show together. And we thank everyone for going through the archive, for staying in touch with the show and waiting for this episode. And here we are, Jim, and we're going to get going with the top 10 in a minute. But I want to talk to you about something uh, here at the top of the show because I've really gotten into the collecting bug and specifically collecting things for what I intend to be future research purposes, future projects I want to do. And a lot of old programs and a lot of magazine collections, a lot of different things. And I was talking recently with wrestling historian John Boucher about just the storage of things. Like, I'll give you an example, the Kitzer magazines. If you collected the Kitzer magazines, how do you store them? They originally are newspapers, and then they're magazines, but they're not full-size magazines, and then they're full-size magazines, and then the numbering's all over the place because they merge with (laughs) Ring Wrestling and Wrestling Review. So I'm curious your thoughts because you are obviously the most prominent person with a wrestling library at their own place. Actually, with any wrestling library, period, now that I think about it, outside of Notre Dame. So how do you address things like that in terms of collecting and storing things in a way that fits the meticulous mind of a collector? I sit here and hope and pray and long for the day when I'll actually have time to go through everything, bag it, board it, and, and properly label it. That's how I store their shit. I've got, see, I, and I get stuff every time I go to a wrestling fan fest or whatever, or every time, you know, I, I accumulate shit through the year and the vault is not big enough. Um, uh, most of my magazine collection is in order in terms of, uh, the, the title and, and, you know, chronological order, uh, from start to finish and on my shelves in the vault. Uh, a lot of the magazines, but not uh, maybe half are bagged. I haven't even got that done yet, bagged and boarded. Uh, I've got programs sorted out by territories and hopefully somewhat chronologically, but then I pull stuff out to do B-roll 
to illustrate what whatever project I'm working on. And sometimes that doesn't get refiled right. And then I've got new stuff on top of that. So it, one of these days when I have time, I'm going to bag, board, seal, label, organize, and catalog everything. But, uh, you know, yeah. Let me give you a situation, ask you how you'd handle it. I have a pretty good sized collection of San Antonio programs. I love these things. And if anyone out there has them and you're looking to get rid of them, get in touch with the great Brian last and I'll say, hey. <laughs> but I love these. And things. I'll say, hey, the wrestler, they're all different sizes. I got them from the early 50s on uh, into the late 70s when they stopped producing these. They're really, really great. So I have them. And even though they're in different sizes, I try to take those sizes and order them in chronological order. So in the midst of all that, an offer came my way to get a collection from someone who really didn't seem like a wrestling fan. It was a photo album. I guess photo album is not even the right word. Just an album with sleeves. And in each sleeve were a few copies of each program. And I think it was 86 San Antonio programs. Good Lord. From 72 to 79 for $90. So I bought it. I said, oh, I absolutely am buying it. I'm going through it. There's a lot of stuff I needed. But then I'm thinking... Do I take them out of this album they've clearly been in since the guy got them in the 70s? It's it's like some kids, you know, the, the page protectors that you yeah. used to use in school back. At, yeah, yeah, I've seen a bunch of that, yeah. What do you do? Like, I have a couple... Uh, well, I mean, if, it, it depends on how anal you want to get about this, because there's Bags Unlimited. You know about Bags Unlimited. I don't know about... You don't this, know about Bags Unlimited? Is this a new sponsor that I haven't been alerted to? Well, apparently it is now. You need to work on that. No, bagsunlimited.com. They have collector's bag. You Anything from newspapers, old newspapers, the big full-sized ones like they used to have when people read things, all the way down to they have uh, uh, for trading cards and things. They have bags for TV guides, uh, backing boards of different sizes and et cetera, for posters and things. Uh, so it, it, you can seal everything up. It just depends. But now you're going to fucking pay probably more than you paid for the shit to bag it and board it. Are there any items that you don't bag for whatever reason? Are there any programs or magazines? Well, yes, because I like it. I have any, I have barely even got to bagging programs yet because I, I had to. I, I bagged and boarded uh, eleven thousand comic books over a two year period a while back. It's just it's time consuming and laborious. And well, why did you prioritize the magazines over the programs? See, I would have gone the other way. Uh, because it was just easier. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know much about the early days, like? In the early 50s, obviously, at the same period of time, the Weeders put out wrestling in, what, 51, I guess. Yeah. And then the NWA official wrestling magazine, which is just some of the coolest covers of any magazines out there, those start coming out. Uh, by the way, I collect those too, anyone listening. But oh, for God's sake. You before shame that, were there, any, were there any national wrestling publications? How long did those magazines last before the next wave of magazines? Uh, the, the ones you mentioned that both their first issues, which I possess, uh, were in, in 1951. And that's when the network TV had gotten going and, and they figured, okay, the, the, basically uh, the national magazines came back when New York wrestling came back because all the publishers were located in New York. So even though TV had been hot since, what, 48, 49, it wasn't in New York. Remember, Gorgeous George flopped, etc. But at that point, they only lasted... A couple of years, if that. You said they, they ran for a while, and you see the same examples of them over and over. You, it, it, but that was the <clears throat> the extent of their run. And then 
for a lot of the mid-50s, it was Wrestling Life out of Chicago or Wrestling As You Like It, whichever incarnation. And those are, uh, those are so amazing. Those are those are are very cool and a lot of legitimate information. Even though it does, they don't expose the business, but they give you business information and promoter shit and everything. And even that, like if you're just like a nerd for this stuff, it's like the first time Jim Barnett flies to Minnesota to meet Vern Gagne. Yeah. It's like his little journal or like I met Vern at the airport, and then he took me home to meet his family. It's all in there. <laughs> Uh, but the, the uh, to answer your question, though, specifically before those, in the 40s, there were really no national wrestling magazines, but there were in the 30s, Arena. And, uh, um, you know, there's a couple of different examples of, of magazines in the 30s, usually with Londos or Lewis on the cover, when and, and they covered boxing and wrestling, but the wrestlers were on the cover and the boxers were in the background. But then later on, it was flipped in the 50s, uh, mid to late fifties, most of the magazines were boxing and wrestling and boxing had the guy on the cover. Always. And then finally wrestling review broke that trend in, in 59 and started the wrestling only magazines of the sixties. And they became, you know, much more popular than the boxing magazines and more numerous, but yeah, you can go back to the twenties and thirties. Especially, I've found a number of, uh, it, the magazine is called arena and it had a, a red logo. Yeah. Late 20s, early 30s, that was primarily wrestling. But boxing and wrestling in those days were treated much the same in the sports pages and the magazines. You know, one of the other things I love about collecting uh, this stuff is you find things that, for a very good reason, are never talked about anymore, like various title histories that just popped up in programs or magazines in different territories that have no semblance of reality. (laughs) I'm going to read you one real quick. This is from Wrestling Wranglers. 1960, first edition. This is one of the Joe Daly publications. If anyone out there knows that, he was a guy, I'm trying to find out more information about him. He put out out of Long Island, New York, all these different publications that I guess they were selling at the local shows in the New York area. So here's the title history listed here. It has it by year. So it doesn't have like, you know, Jim Cornette beat this person. It has in 1937, Jim Cornette won the title. And then it'll list who had it for each year. So for example, 1947, Whipper Billy Watson, Luthez, Bill Longson. 1948 until 1954, Luthez. 1955, Leo Namalini dethroned Luthez. <laughs> 1956, Edouard Carpentier took the title from Namalini. What? 1957, Dick Hutton beat Carpentier. Oh, for fuck's sake. And then it says 1958, Dick Hutton. 1959, Pat O'Connor. So, <laughs> a completely. <sighs> Out of nowhere, I mean, we all know about the disputed Carpentier claim, but that isn't this. This is a completely different thing. Well, yeah, at, at, at first, it, it, well, with Namalini, yeah, well, he had it for a minute, technically, but <laughs> but no, he didn't keep it for like a year or whatever. The, and the next match never even happened. Yeah, I have another one, a uh, chic program from Detroit. It's great because it lists like, every NWA title change of the 60s, and in order, it says like world champion, uh, history of the world championship, and it says, Luthez defeats Buddy Rogers. Gene Kaniski defeats Luthez. Bruno San Martino. Just all of a sudden, what? Just, all of a sudden, they just declare new champion. You know? Oh, no, you know what? For a brief period of time, that was in the 60s, right? Uh, yeah, it would have been uh, probably late 60s, yeah. A brief period of time, uh, they had Bruno coming in to Detroit. So there you go. Well, everyone tried out Bruno. It's convenient. <laughs> everyone really tried out bruno i mean even he came into memphis too didn't he 
Well, uh, uh, once he, I think he was in Memphis and Nashville as WWF champion, and he brought Luke Graham to defend against. And I don't know why that the if, it, if Nick and Roy at that point that were so uh, wrapped up in the NWA did that, except if it was some kind of deal that they were doing with Vince Senior or something. It was just odd. But it, once in '67, I think, and never again. But in this case, I always heard a story that, you know, and, and, you know, I guess now with all the fucking research that everybody's done, and I guess I should ask old Supermouth Dave Drayson, but in addition to the funks being there when the box office was robbed, I always heard that Sheik brought Bruno in and, and gave him a couple of wins and built him up for a match with the Sheik, and they said, we'll go two out of three, and Sheik took the first fall, and Bruno's still waiting on the second one. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but it, it, but then, you know, that may be why Bruno didn't stick around. I don't know. Was there any promoter, wrestler promoter, uh, let me clarify, I guess, that pulled as much shit as the Sheik at the end? Like the last like five years of the Sheik in the NWA, <laughs> he just didn't give a fuck. He just, I'm going to rip people off. I'm going to take the money. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. We just throw Allegedly. <laughs> Wait, what are you getting me in this for? I get on enough, enough trouble on my own show. Thank you. <laughs> that's true. That's true. The last Captain time Ed said- George might want to blade me. <laughs> that's the last time you said something about the Sheik. You talked about how ridiculous you thought it was that Captain Ed George claimed that the Sheik never bladed. And then Captain Ed George, I think, you know, had some yeah. things to say about you that weren't very kind. And that's the yeah. first time we had heard of Captain Ed George since the box office snafu. Since, since 1978. <laughs> 1978. But I'll tell you what, Jim, let's get going with the top 10. And of course, the top 10 is brought to you by our friends, the wrestling fans over at Ramsor Records. And you can go there, of course, ramsorrecords.kungfustore.com. Enter the promo code 605 at checkout and save 20%. We want to tell you about a new album. Let me play a little bit of music here behind us. There we go. Some nice soothing sounds. There you may remember the very first time Ramsor Records sponsored the Super Podcast. It was for a band, Bombadil. And this is their latest album. It is out right now. Beautiful country. Check it out today. They are from Durham, North Carolina. Two singles have already been released. You can hear the whole album, of course, right now. And they are touring as we speak. You can go to bombadillmusic.com slash tour and get more information. And did I make this too loud? Is it louder than me? It's a little bit loud, but it's a bombadilly. We'll lower it a little bit. It is very nice. It's a it's a bombadilly of the song. Really. Hey, Dolphus is on a roll with these guys and the Avid brothers and all these North Carolina boys. All right, we will cut it right well, there. there. You go. A yeah. former North Carolina boy, Jim Corn. How many years did you live in Charlotte? Uh, from 1985 until 1992. Other than the traffic, because I know that'll be coming. Do you miss Charlotte? Uh, yeah, sometimes, yes. It w- it was so pleasant uh, and green, and there were trees everywhere, and and it just it was a very nice town then. And now, the last number of times I've been there, holy shit, it's chaos, and they've got new interstates, and it's a giant place and everything. But in, in those days, I didn't have any days off. But every there was like two or three restaurants. If I had a day off, we would go to dinner. That was my treat to myself. That we, you know, in Charlotte, it was it was very nice and relaxing. I, I went to my old neighborhood. I can't even recognize it now. It was this. Fuck it, there was it was a, a sub, suburb of Charlotte 
you know, like a two-lane road and the stoplight, and there's the post office, and there's the bank and everything, and now it's a fucking giant four-lane thing with strip malls and giant buildings all the way down. I can't even recognize it. I don't know where my house is. They may have paved it over. You know, Dolph very proudly calls Ramsar Records the mid-Atlantic wrestling of the music industry because it is a small little label out of North Carolina, really doing amazing things. And I just want to get, before we get to the top 10, it has been something that various guys, I think Ric Flair has said it, but other guys have said it too. What is your take on the idea that if the Crockett's had not expanded at all, if they had just stayed in the mid-Atlantic and done things the way they always did, maybe with some other TV deals in play, that they never would have gone out of business if they had just stayed to the mid-Atlantic states? Well, a never might be, it's, it's been fucking 30 years, so never might be an exaggeration, but if they were not... <sighs> If they were not in financial difficulty in 1988 because of all the moves they made in 1987, it was, you know, going west of the Mississippi is simplistic. It was buying up the other territories and trying to do the big TV network and trying to and, and opening a now office in Dallas to try to sell the national advertising and that whole thing. Um, if they had concentrated on building their own live events and their own television network without going through absorbing all those territories that already had time slots, but in some cases people weren't watching them or elsewise they might not have been going out of fucking business, Kansas city, you know, they certainly would have. And once again, they were still working with TBS. It was still one of TBS's highest rated programs. So it's not like they were going to kick them off if they didn't, TBS didn't have the, idea to buy the company until they went to him and said, Hey, we, you know, we're in some financial difficulty and we need help getting on pay-per-view. If they'd gone to him and said, Hey, we need help getting on pay-per-view, but boy, we're just farting through silk. Then they probably would have done some kind of partnership with TBS, but, but you know, the Crockett's would have maintained the company for a few more years, at least. And they might've had the idea eventually that TBS would have wanted to and, and gone to them saying, Hey, let us buy this shit. But by then, we may have bypassed the fucking danger of Jim Hurd, and it would have been a whole new ballgame. Because once again, in 1988, Jim Crockett Promotions, at the time that they sold, was drawing big houses. And if they were starting, you know, even there, they would have been making money. But they were two million bucks in the hole from all of the things I mentioned. All right, let me ask you this. This is a tough one, and I'm sure you've probably never been asked this before. Despite the successes of 1984... Would Mid-South Wrestling slash UWF, well, it probably wouldn't be UWF, would it have lasted longer if Bill Watts would not have absorbed Leroy McGurk's interest in Oklahoma and Arkansas? What? If he had kept it to Louisiana and Mississippi. Yes. How much longer could he have lasted just running Louisiana and Mississippi? He, he wouldn't have lasted as long as he did. He fucking Oklahoma and Arkansas was fucking huge. Oak City and Tulsa on a bad day, would gross uh, 80, 80 grand on a, on a bad day of houses. Little Rock was a, a twenty-five dollars to $35,000 town, except we did 63 at the last stampede. No, 71. 63 was in Jackson, Mississippi. No, it, it, he ran practically no spot shows in Oklahoma. He only ran Oak City and Tulsa, so that was a huge money generator. Those were two of the big towns. And in Arkansas, he only ran 
You know, every once in a while, Pine Bluff at the Pine Bluff Convention Center, do 15 grand for a spot show. Nothing to write home about, but certainly, you know, it wasn't going to lose you money. And, you know, some southern Arkansas towns that were close to Louisiana. So the McGurk Territory, <clears throat> he never ran Springfield, Missouri. Uh, didn't go into Missouri at all. So the McGurk Territory that he absorbed uh, was a fucking huge winner because he got Oak City and Tulsa in the deal. And, I mean, the, the day of the last stampede, Oak City and Tulsa grossed over $160,000 same day. And when he brought Flair and Carey in to uh, for the NWA title in the main event and had uh, big shows later on that September, I think the uh, it did another hundred and fifty something thousand dollars in one day or whatever the fuck. So that was huge. It is amazing that he lasted so long just running Louisiana and Mississippi. Then all those things uh, in the consideration. Well, no, no, you don't think so? Not really. No, because he starts his own territory. Um, he gets uh, television in every market. Uh, uh, well, he didn't start his own territory. They had been running, but they had neglected it. But he he goes to Louisiana and Mississippi, gets TV in every major market. And let, let me just stop um, you there, because it is in a lot of ways like he split off because he ended up with the KTBS studio wrestling show. So, I mean, it was the same yeah. look and the same show. Boyd Pierce, I mean, the same commentators that people were used to. Yes. And, and, you know, it just, it was the, 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 those states had been somewhat neglected back in the, you know, in the days before he started. Anyway, <clears throat> the point is with Louisiana, you had New Orleans, he was already running the Superdome before he expanded or expanded into Houston. He's already running the Superdome four times a year and everybody's hearing about it. Everybody wants to go to Mid-South Wrestling and wants to put you in a Superdome, but he's running New Orleans weekly and with the dog. They were selling, what, fucking 200,000 tickets a year. Uh, but he also had Baton Rouge, Lake Charles, Louisiana, Monroe, Louisiana, Shreveport, Louisiana, Alexandria, Louisiana. Um, Beaum uh, no, not, he didn't have Beaumont at that point. Uh, what's the one I'm at? Lafayette, Louisiana. And in Mississippi, he had Jackson, Greenwood, Greenville, and Biloxi. Plus, uh, fucking spot shows. He had more big towns than the Memphis Territory did just running Louisiana and Mississippi. How many total miles a week? Oh, a real good week would be a little over 4,000. 4,000 miles a week. Uh, I mean, it, it, a normal week would be 2,500 to three, but a bad, bad week would be 4,000. But that's, you know, you broke it up by working eight different shows. Who went through the most amount of cars while you were there? Uh, well, Buddy Landell, but that's because he kept wrecking them. Well, yeah, that's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> I think Grizzly Smith's Cadillac had like 500,000 miles on it. Well, anyway, we were going to get going with the top 10, so let's do that yes. now. And of course, the top 10 is voted on by the listeners of the Super Podcast at Facebook.com slash Super Podcast at number 10. This week in the top 10, it's the old lady, Mrs. Spencer. Homosexual Jim. <laughs> An old friend of yours. <laughs> she's still, you motherfucking son of a bitch. She's been in the top ten longer than Dark Side of the Fucking Moon. You motherfucker, motherfucker. I like the, the the one I've ended up using in real life is this one. You fuck son of a bitch, you. You fuck son of a bitch, you. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I, I unfortunately will not die in the next 30 seconds. You know, it's something you and I have talked about on 
your various programs, just the changing makeup of wrestling crowds and specifically the loss of the old lady in the crowd. Yes. The little old lady with the purse who may swing it at the wrestlers and more than likely will get away with it more than anyone else. But everyone had one. I mean, the WWF had one. They had one in every territory. Knoxville, Bounce and Beulah. Bounce and Beulah. The interesting thing was, was she there like at the heyday of Southeastern? Uh, I, I, she was there in about the late seventies cause, uh, she knew all the, the Armstrongs and all the Southeastern boys, I think. But, uh, but she was transplanted from Ohio earlier in her life. But, and that, that there was, there was an old, we, we called her fish meat face, this old woman in Louisville because she was, <laughs> that's not nice. Well, it is, it looked like she had scales, <laughs> Because she was she was literally maybe four feet ten, and if she weighed seventy five pounds, I can't imagine it. And she had to be in her sixties or seventies. She looked like if you touched her, she'd turn to dust. And this long, gray black straggly hair and these glasses that were so thick, she looked like a seal peering through a block of ice. Her eyeballs were magnified, right, and they were just so coke bottle thick. And her voice sounded just like that. And when she screamed at the heels, the only thing you could understand was the cuss words. Everything else was completely unintelligible. And and she came with her husband, this old guy, who's about 6'3", 250, looked like one of the Bowery boys, elderly gone bad with fucking, you know, three days of stubble on and, and going bald in the, and they had the fucking you know, gas station fucking clothing on and everything. And he would have to pull her back when she would get up and be shaking her fist at the rope, which she, she's probably the only one in the building. The rope would have, would have kept her out of the ring, right? <laughs> she's shaking her fist and he's having to pull her back. And his gimmick was, if you asked him how he was, he'd tell you every single <laughs> doctor's visit that he'd had the last month or year or whatever. So I used to, when, when fans would come in from out of town, the smart fans, right? In the 70, the Terry Robert justices of the world, when they, when they'd come to the gardens, I'd always make sure to introduce them to what the fuck was his name? Mr. So-and-so I'd say, say, I was just saying to Terry that you've been sick lately. Tell him all about it. And I would fucking duck out. I'd come back 30 minutes later. They'd still be there. You know, you bring up Terry justice. That's a name that a lot of people still ask about because there's very little known about him beyond the guys who got to know him at the WFIA or through exchanging correspondence with him and getting his various zines, which he didn't charge for. He just mailed free a charge yeah. to anyone who contributed. And there were a ton of them. I mean, sometimes it was multiple issues a week. Describe him. I mean, because I've never met him. I've never heard his voice. Oh, I've only read his well, stuff. Well, what kind of guy was he? He was a great guy. He was I mean, it, it, he was a guy from, I think he's from Rochester, right? New York or Syracuse, one or the other. And, you know, and I mean, he was, he was not like a wild over the top personality. He was kind of a quiet, friendly, you know, normal seventies nerdy guy with glasses that liked wrestling and was a real nice guy. And, uh, uh he had a, a twin brother, Scott, that w was in, in, interested in wrestling also, but not to his extent. And basically if you sent in clippings, he, that's what he printed in his, his, uh, fanzines were the clippings and, and results or whatever from the paper of all the various territories. And it was, you know, it, he sent those out for free and they were thick and fucking nicely Xeroxed and stapled together and everything. I've got tons of them. 
Uh, but he came to the WFIA conventions, and then he met Eddie Gilbert and Tommy in 79 in Memphis. No, it may have been 78, but Eddie wasn't wrestling at that point. He met him in 78. Right, but, then, but Eddie's fan club started before he was wrestling. That was the big deal. That, well, there, there you go. Uh, he had to start a fan club for Tommy and Eddie Gilbert. A TNT uh, Times, Tommy and Tommy, because he was going to be Tommy Gilbert Jr. At, at the start, right? And and so he did, and and that's how Eddie got a lot of publicity early because he sent his stuff everywhere. But he was just he was a real nice guy, loved on these wrestling trips to go to the old Howard Johnson's restaurant and have the fried clam dinner. That was his big fucking thing. And ended up just out of the blue. He was only thirty something years old and got killed by a drunk driver. And you know it was just, it was a big shock to everybody. And and then you know everybody. That's why. One of the reasons why it's so easy to cover that particular period of time in wrestling, he compiled for the period of time he was doing those bulletins, just about every fucking wrestling clipping in the country. Yeah. And, and they've, and they've, people have copied them and I've seen sheets that I know were from Terry's bulletins that come to me still at copied that fans hand to me and shit. Do you know, like, cause you were involved with the inside scene back then. Do you know any scuttlebutt about like, what happened with, Terry Justice and Eddie Gilbert. So it was a big falling out, wasn't there? Like the family didn't want him to have anything to do with the fan club anymore and stuff. You know, I can't fucking remember. (laughs) I don't remember what the fuck happened. Now that you've said that, it seems like there was something going on, but I I don't know what it was. I'm sure I, I knew at the time and or Weasel would know. You're a liar and a bastard. Well, <laughs> that's number 10, the old lady, Mrs. Spencer. Go to hell, you motherfucking son of a bitch. At number nine in the top 10, it's orgasmic Larry Nelson. No, I... And now the short form. No, what's the stipulation? You know, Orgasmic Larry has still captivated everyone. Jim, you have a big library. We've talked so much about it. Do you have Larry Nelson's book? In your library? I do not. Why not? I must have. I didn't know he had a book until you just asked me that question. He has a great book. Don't you want to know about like the drinking and the drugs and the condos in Minnesota? Well, sure. Send that book on down to me. Fifteen listeners are going to send you copies of that book now. But when you look at the comments, is any of it true? I, <laughs> apparently, a good deal of it is, is true. Oh, I think. Well, now I actually am interested because I asked Polish Joe Chupik. You know, he's a a, a pretty mild-mannered, good guy, great friend of the show, but a mild-mannered production guy. He doesn't really ever expand upon things. He tells you exactly how it is. And I said, you know, in the book, Larry Nelson talks about some story about Marty Jannetty getting a blowjob during promos in post like, Oh, yeah, I remember that. I was there. <laughs> So, I mean, I think the stories in the book, for the most part, hold up. But when you look at the commentators today, is there anyone who you think would be interesting enough to write a book? Um, well... You know, that Ian Riccoboni in Ring of Honor, behind that cherubic face and that big smile, it looks like he's got evil behind those eyes. Wow. I bet you, I bet you there's something going on with that old fella. That Ian Riccoboner. Hey, now. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he's a very pleasant young man. I'm just fucking with you. What commentators do you do? You wish like Lance Russell wrote a book. Do you wish? I mean, Gordon. Soley oh yeah, a, Gordon Soley's family, I guess, put out a book, and he had a book years earlier, but it wasn't the era where you really got a prodding interview and it produced like great inside detail yeah. or anything. 
No, Lance, Lance's would have been been great because it's just so long and covers so many years. But at least we got him to tell a lot of it on the the shows and the Q and A's and everything. But uh, but that would have been cool. What about Bob Cottle? Bob would be another one, and and uh, he's gone through about fifteen different television eras, so he he's he's seen a lot. So yeah, that would be. Uh, that would be, but I, you know, I don't know why they don't. Maybe they, Bob Caudle might not want to hurt anybody's feelings, but I don't know why more of these guys don't jot these things down. How many guys that you encounter during your career? I mean, no one to your level, obviously, but how many well, guys? Of, of course, I don't even know what it is first, but no, not to my level. How many guys kept notes? How many guys kept records of promos or records of their finishes oh. or all their details of their road expense? Like how many guys actually did that that you know of? Good Lord. Um, probably not enough. Um, well, you know, like Johnny Weaver was always famous for having a book of finishes. Um, but then Ole used to grump at him. Ah, you can't write that down. You just have to feel it. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, <laughs> most of the guys, if I had to bet in the eighties, they just, whatever they did with their taxes, it was just kind of estimated and hope they never got audited. I don't know if anybody else actually did this as religiously as I did on, on a, on a, on a business level for taxes or information or on a business level for writing things down. Usually the the guys that were booking and occasionally and like, and like a JJ Dillon, you know, cause he had, you know, his book is one of the better books because he had all that documentation and things too. I once saw like a Joan Rivers had a whole filing system for jokes. You ever think about doing that for finishes? Like an actual, you know, you can pull up in the file cabinet. Well, like, oh. yeah, I can pop the corn too. I can't even fucking bag and board my magazine. <laughs> That's true. Goddamn file of fucking finishes. Yeah. And you're neglecting the programs. What am I thinking? Yeah. Well, that's number nine of the top ten, orgasmic, Larry Nelson. Oh, I... Are we having fun, people? At number eight in the top ten, making a return to the top ten, Sue the Shooter. Hello, Jim. Oh, God. This is the, long, this is the longest ten count ever given in wrestling. I haven't done this voice in months. I don't know if I can still do it. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> I forgot how to do the voice. If you keep doing that, your voice will freeze that way. Jim, were there any rats that had funny voices? I don't know about funny voices, but in the interest of full disclosure, <laughs> I will... I don't even know where you're going. But I'm like, I will go ahead and mention that there was this one girl in Shreveport that had hearing aids on both ears. And for whatever reason... If she assumed a particular position, such as, let's say, on her knees and with her head tilted slightly downward, she hummed. She got a fucking feedback or something and went, <laughs> the, ear, the hearing aid went, That's what I've heard. Well, I didn't expect that. Uh, that's number, uh, number eight in the Let's top 10. <laughs> Sue the shooter at number seven in the top 10, making a return to the top 10. He's always popular. It's Jim Cornette's answering machine. How do we handle this? Should we call you answering machine or should we not? 
Well, it's up to you. This is your fucking program. All right. Well, I don't know how full it is. Usually I ask you based on. Oh, well, just we'll, we'll just call it. It shows that it's dialing him. I hear ringing on the other end. Let's see if we get feedback. Some hum. Hello, Hello Brian. Last. Whoa. Fuck, fuck you. you. <laughs> <laughs> Say something the else. Call is, is coming, coming from, from inside, inside the, the podcast. podcast. <laughs> well, it's number seven in the top ten. I believe he's hung up on me. Or no, he's still. It shows that he's still there. Have you hung up? I'm. I'm still here. Well, no, that you're still there, but it shows that your answering machine is still on the line. Well, that wouldn't be. I don't think so. All right. Well, yeah. I'm gonna just make sure. I'm gonna hang up on your phone. And now your phone is gone. Hang up on your phone. There it is. Number seven in the top ten. Jim Cornette's answering machine at. Number six this week in the top ten, the always popular, disappointed, Lance Russell. Tell him in Mexican just to get out of here. Look out! Jim, we've talked so much about the disappointment, but beyond the disappointment, you know, I was thinking about it the other day, Lance may be the commentator more than anyone else that I've seen the entire range of, I don't even know if emotion is the right word, but I've seen Lance as relaxed as possible. In the yes. studio, you're like, hey, Davey, we're ready to go. Just so relaxed. And then I've seen him flip out and lose his shit a few times. What is the importance? Because we don't really see it nowadays. Nowadays, the commentators, you're lucky if they change their, uh, <laughs> their volume once while they're yelling at you throughout the whole show. But what is the importance in the commentator being able to go up and down like that? And actually, not only being able to, but doing it, not just yelling at you for the whole show. Well, yeah, it, but also it's... It's not even just that as much as the commentators don't get disgusted at the heels as much as they used to. Or, you know, it, it, it has to be some heinous act rather than, well, oh, he, caught, he poked him right in the eye. Well, then, now, that, that, you, you can't poke a guy in the eye. They don't, oh, there's an eye poke if they even call it. Right? And Lance was all over that. I remember one time when Lawler was turning heel, right? Right as he was completing the heel turn. It was over a couple of week period where he was getting further and further out of control. Finally, Lance had had enough. He, you know, Jerry, I've known you all this time and I've made excuses for you, but it's just, it's just obvious. You're just, you're just a dadgummed egomaniac. And right, right with that, everybody's like, yeah, you tell him Lance. Because Lance had been his fucking champion all that time that he was a baby face. Uh, but I've made excuses for you and the way you act sometime, fella. There's no dressing down anymore of a person as, as, you know, being personally reprehensible. It's like, well, I can't believe that you just took a chainsaw and disemboweled that young man. What are your thoughts? If the commentator yells at you all the time when he, when he needs to yell, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It, and, and, and the emotions need to change, like you mentioned with Lance, is, you know, well, look at here, Dave. We got a brand new uh, young fella on the show today so that the next segment when some heel is gouging some guy's eye out, he can be completely different. You know, I don't know why this made me think of another example of a commentator, which is going to lead me to a question for you. And that is when they did the famous Mr. Olympia and Junkyard Dog versus Matt Bourne and Ted DiBiase, loser of the fall leaves town, and Hacksaw Duggan comes in dressed as the gorilla. 
And yes. Bill Watts is like, what's going on at ringside? That's Dugan! That's Dugan! He starts <laughs> screaming. But it made me wonder, when you were there, did, did Hacksaw Duggan ever talk to you about the fact that Watts insisted on calling him Dugan? And n- no, I think he had just accepted it by that point. Because <laughs> <laughs> on some of the early episodes, he's there and he's a heel, but you hear like Boyd say on commentary, like, you know, it's spe- he mentioned to me the other day, it's spelled with two G's, it's pronounced Duggan, but uh, we call it Dugan too. Like, just, they just decide they're going to call him that no matter what. <laughs> I, I I think it's just because Watts didn't want to, you know, admit that he had screwed it up to begin with. But no, yeah, he I, he would do that even when I was there. He would call him Hacksaw Dugan. <laughs> but uh, no, I think Jim was just resigned to it by that point. Well, that's number six in the top ten. Disappointed, Lance Russell. Ah, oh, I don't want to see you around here anymore. At number five in the top ten, for some reason, he keeps getting voted in. That is none other than. Hot Dog, or as many of you call it, Hot Dog and Lasto. Let's go to this recording right now, and let's see what Hot Dog has in store for us. Here at number five this week in the top ten is Hot Dog, or as some people continue to call him, Hot Dog and Lasto, and I believe he is on the line right now. Hot Dog, welcome back to the Super Podcast. You are at number five this week in the top ten. Number five, fantastic, Brian Lasto. <laughs> Welcome right. once again to the hippest trip in America. Four to five nonstop hours across the tracks of your mind into the exciting world of the Hot Dog and Lasto Show. How long did you say this was? Possibly four to five hours. This oh, is before no. editing. Oh, no. <laughs> well, listen, Hot Dog, we're not going four to five hours, me and you, but you are here in the top ten at number five this week. Well, any thoughts on any of this? Yeah, well, you know, buddy, I'm not the type to toot my own horn, but uh, <laughs> All right, sure here we are again, that. holding steady at number five. What's going on in the world of hot dog? I guess we should get a little bit of an update. It's been a while since we te- teamed up, and I wanted this to be a special occasion, considering I'm sitting uh, sitting steady here at number five. So I I brought along a special guest. I don't mean to spring this on you, but. Uh, Lasto, pick up line number three. Uh, there, there is no line three, hot dog. Who do you have on the line? Uh, hello, uh, Brian. Yes. Hey, it's your old pal, Impressionist Jr. Get out of here, Impressionist Jim Ross. Welcome back to the Super Podcast. What a surprise! You're here to save the hot dog segment. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> well, that would be petty larceny. <laughs> <laughs> well. I just wanted to call in before I begin my ridiculously highly paid duties at my new job well, and perhaps rub your faces in my success. Rub our faces? Hold on, Impressionist JR. You haven't been on this show in months, and now this is how you're going to come on here? You're going to insult the listeners or say that you want to insult the listeners? Well, uh, I mean that with all due respect, and I also want to wish you all congratulations sincerely on 100 episodes of the the 605 Super Podcast. Things here at the new company so far are very uh, tranquilo, to coin a phrase. Now, contractually, I'm no longer permitted to do my famous impressions, for which I was so well known, for anyone who is, how can I put it, less than a billionaire, and I'm sorry, but your listeners voted me off the show so many years ago. So if you want me to break out the impressions, Brian, you... You have to make it rain, partner. 
<laughs> you can rent, well, you get out of here. You're not worth any money to the show. And- Brian. Yeah. Who else is on the line here, if I may ask? Uh, it is just apparently you, me, and uh, I believe Hot Dog would be a separate person here on this call. As they once said in Mid-South, where's the blowjobs? <laughs> what? You know what? Uh, <laughs> all those voices are the intellectual property of my new boss. Oh, look at this. They're the intellectual property of my new boss. I'm sorry. Uh, they've just wheeled in a water cooler into my new office, which is filled with Moscow mules. <laughs> they they really know how to treat the old impressionist here Uh, (laughs) unlike your show i may say well i guess so i guess oh yeah say voted my old ass off the show brian don't you remember that well and now you're repaying them by not doing any of your famed impressions i did want to briefly mention uh, my new line of fine food products farm fresh preserves yes Good old Grandma JR's jams and jellies. Mmm, mmm. They come in three tantalizing flavors Pet Coon Goofy Grape, Chipotle Crabapple, <laughs> and the seasonal favorite Pumpkin Spice. Okay. Well, that is a seasonal favorite. Everyone seems to like that this time of year. Oh, yes. Grandma JR's Jams and Jellies. Your tongue will beat your taste buds like a redheaded stepchild. Well, <laughs> that may not be a, the best expression to use in this day and age, but... I'm not even sure what it means, quite frankly. Well, this, this seems uh, like this seems like a good appearance for you. You didn't do any of the impressions people wanted to hear, and you plugged all your shit. Hot Dog and Lasto and good old JR. <laughs> uh, Brian? Uh, yes. Impressionist Jim Ross. I don't mean to interrupt, but uh, good old JR has got a role. It's a big week for me. I'm I'm still out there scouting talent. Uh, In fact, I've I've got a line on a young leper from Columbus, Ohio, who does a ventriloquist gimmick. (laughs) He's tearing up the indie scene, and uh, I want to get him locked in and signed before anybody else grabs him. So uh, this is cantankerous good old impressionist JR saying... uh, Go shit in your hat. And, <laughs> and so long, everybody. Well, well, thank you very much. Impressionist Jim Ross. How about that? How about that? Good old Impressionist JR. Wow. And there he is to ruin the segment, Hot Dog. But there we are, Hot Dog. As I said before, at number five in the top ten, I thought you were back on the line. All of a sudden, Impressionist Jim Ross jumped back on the line. But at number five in the top ten on episode 100, Getting me all fired up. Anything you want to say to the listeners? Did JR seem a little bit on edge to you, Lasto? He seemed uh, just about normal. Really? Hmm, I thought he was a little bit troubled, you know? Maybe. He's got a lot on his plate. (laughs) Wow, well, it is absolutely great to be here at number five. Uh, What are you trying to say, Hot? I don't even get what your joke is there. Joke? Look at the time, Lasto. I had, a, I had a whole parade of special guests lined up. All right, Hot Dog, I don't know what the fuck is going on here this week. How do we get out of this segment? Hot Dog, is there anything else you want to say to the listeners of the Super Podcast as we wrap up here in the top ten? Hey, Lasto, was it something I said? Yeah, maybe so. We got to start wrapping things up. Here we are at number five in the top ten. Anything else you want to say to the listeners here this week on episode 100 of the Super Podcast? Wow, time really got away from us. I had a whole parade of special guests line up to pay you tribute and sing our praises, but then I found out we're only number five in the ratings book. Number five, man. Ponderous. 
fucking ponderous. <laughs> okay, and all right. I think we dropped a few spots while you were on your long hiatus. I'm making air quotes here. <laughs> right. Hey, I'm just ribbing, brother. We'll be back on top this time next time. Hey, Lasto. Yes, Hot Dog. Wrap things up, Hot Dog. We gotta go. There he is at number five in the top ten, Hot Dog and Lasto. That was quick. I, I barely noticed. Well, it was quick for you. It was, it was hours for me, it felt like. Weeks. Some may say months. But at number four this week in the top ten is hiccuping fabulous moolah and let's now go to her ranch or whatever it is in south carolina and see the compound it was it was a compound her compound and see what's going on in the wild world of hiccuping fabulous moolah let's go there right now here at number four this week in the top 10 is the always popular hiccuping fabulous moolah and i believe we're heading out to her place right now and is it South Carolina? I believe it's South Carolina. Mula, are you there? Oh, hi, it is, Brian. It is Columbia, South Carolina. It's a beautiful August morning today. Now, what is this, Thursday? This is Canvas Cavity, right? This is No, this is not Canvas Cavity with <gasps> Dr. Mike Lane. Oh, you started early, Mula. Excuse me. This is the top 10 for the 605 Super Podcast, episode 100, and here you are at number four. Oh, it's an honor to be here, Brian. I don't know if you should go around disclosing <gasps> a lady's age like that. But anyways, you know, how are you in this wondrous season celebrating your big anniversary? Well, it's not really an anniversary. It's just a, a milestone of sorts, even though we've actually done well more than 100 episodes. But this is the actual 100th episode of the proper 605 Super Podcast. Well, I think that is... <laughs> I think that is just tremendous. Whoa. And as you can tell, Brian, I have got my my um, situation under <gasps> control since last time we've spoken. Well, it sounded so I think like you'll find <gasps> you'll find this visit to be a true pleasure. Well, so far it's been nothing but. However, it does seem like your little problem is getting a little out of hand, Mula. But here we are, episode one hundred. You have made such an impact here in the top ten and on the Super Podcast, and. Do you have any message? Do you have anything you want to say to the listeners, the 605ers, not just so that they vote you into a higher position next time for the top 10, but to celebrate this milestone, episode 100? Well, you know, I'm actually over here celebra <gasps> celebrating with a very special lady right now. My 327-year-old Aunt Carolyn has stopped by for mimosas. <gasps> for now, just between... <gasps> Just between you, me, and the oak tree, she's easily the most willfully spiteful, mean-spirited, cynical, impossible-to-impress woman that I've ever had the displeasure of trying to get along with. But, Brian, as my spiritual guru, Princess Little Teats, once told me in a dressing room in Des Moines, you remember Princess Little Tease, Brian. Don't be coy. She asked for you by name, you know. I, I, I... <laughs> New Jersey, 1993. Dennis Carluzzo's show. <laughs> I think I've said enough. I don't know what you're talking about. But anyway, uh, Mula, how old did you say your, your aunt was? She's a spry 327 this year, Brian. <gasps> but, you know, 
She's an impossible woman. And Princess Little Teats, what she said to me in that dressing room changed my life. She said, Lillian, just smile in their face and wish them to hell. <gasps> Which is what I try to do, no matter how vile or dismissive she may be. Well, anyway, <gasps> anyway, Brian, it's drink time and everybody can hear me now, so we haven't discussed anything bad. On to Carolyn, what are you having today? I'll have an Arnold Palmer. Tell the chef I wanted 52 Arnold and 48% Palmer. Hell no. I've been here before. You know, Auntie, I couldn't help but notice you uh, no-sold my mentioning that I've been Women's World Wrestling Champion <gasps> for the past 127 years running. Why? Well, what about now? I don't understand what you do all day. Well, I have tons of things. I've still defended <gasps> my championship, my life. I have my, my moolah brand molasses to look over. <gasps> I like to keep in shape. You know, business is good. There's my charity. <gasps> Well, that's up to you. If that's satisfying, if that's how you want to live your life. I also have my own. Uh, what is that very voice? Popular pod- <laughs> I also have my own. Pod- well, that's my, that's my Aunt Carolyn Brown. That's what I've been trying. You know, all of us moolah ladies are part lizard. You have to understand. Uh, she sounds like Howard She's Brown from- doing Jimmy Cagney. <laughs> I don't know what <laughs> voices she has. <laughs> hey, listen, I don't know what kind of show you're running here. <laughs> but that's the way I talk, okay? And I'm from New Jersey, too. Montclair, okay. to be specific. Oh. Even though I'm not based on a real character who may or may not be Howard's actual aunt. So just go along with the bit, because it's almost over. <laughs> okay, Mula, where were we with this bit? I forgot. You know, I'm sorry, Lillian, but this is the rudest fucking bitch I have ever seen. And who are you? Who am I? I am psychedelic Ivan Koloff, <laughs> former WWF champion. Oh, another has been. <laughs> what was that? She's dead. <laughs> week in the top 10 someone jim Cornette knows very well cranky barista ken patera let's go to this conversation i had with him earlier today right now here at number three this week in the top 10 here on episode 100 is none other than cranky barista ken patera and i believe he is on the line right now cranky barista ken patera how are yeah. you 
That, uh, lovely. Yeah, I'm here. Uh, remind me just, uh, what the fuck is this again? This is the top 10, as voted on by the listeners of the Super Podcast. And you are, once again, in the top 10 at number three, Cranky Barista, Ken Patera. Uh, barista. <laughs> barista, my Olympic asshole. Uh, holy shit. Let's just say my former place of employment and I uh, came to an abrupt parting of the ways. This was months ago. Yeah, it's all a misunderstanding, uh, those cunts. I've moved on. You know, you'd know this if you checked in with me once every six months or so, huh? <laughs> well, hey, huh? I've been working on things behind the scenes. Ah, behind the, that's a good place for you, behind the scenes. Thank Christ I'm, what, number three in the fucking super top ten, though? <laughs> number three. That and $6 will buy you a venti caramel uh, frap of fucking Cheeto. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. Fuck the barista. For now, I'm doing a lot of uh, meet and greets and fan fests and shit. So if you see the old Olympic strongman at one of these things, uh, come up and say hello and uh, put me out of my misery, please. <laughs> yeah. Wood chipper. Yeah. Oh, it's like Shangro, goddamn fucking Lottie Da. Number three, though. Wonderful. Yeah. Interview over, you weird beard. <laughs> Call me back anytime. <laughs> there he is, number three, cranky barista Ken Patera. He is so cranky. The skies have opened up. I don't know if you can hear this. It's a downpour over here right now at Last Manor. But cranky barista Ken Patera remains very popular here on the show, Jim. Well, that's a good thing because I always like Ken Patera. He's a fine, fine representative of the, of the United States in the Olympics in the boulder tossing category. No, I like Ken Patera. I took him uh, from Memphis to God, was it Jonesboro, Arkansas or somewhere the Saturday night spot show one time when he was in town and he needed to ride. So I pick him up at his hotel and, you know, off we go, right? And we're we're talking because I, you know, only just met him. He'd just come in. But obviously, he's a big star in the business. He's currently working for Vern in the AWA. And um, I said, uh, Ken, I said, being, you know, as strong as you are, does your temper ever get the better of you? Do you ever, you know, he's, oh, I've turned over a few Coke machines in my day. <laughs> and I swear to God, it wasn't a fucking year later. <laughs> That, you know, here come, you know, you deserve a break today. Your arms and your legs. I'm going to throw this fucking boulder. Uh, but, yeah, he he often said that, uh, you know, the Coke machines were were at risk. But I didn't realize it'd be the whole fucking fast food place. At number two this week in the top ten is Kevin. And I believe he is on the line right now to talk to you, Mr. Cornette. Kevin, are you there? Hey, you there. Hey. Jim Cornette. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh gosh, oh, gosh. I remember one time me and me and Carrie, we mowed the lawn in the rain. <laughs> oh, I are, is the caller from Denton, Texas. Oh gosh. How'd you know? Hey, have you ever thrown a saw blade through a cat? <laughs> I'll take that as a no. Well, there he is, number two in the top ten. He's just—he's—he's—his just, he's, he's, sons are such nice young fellows, and he's just been so so good, you know, over the last little while. He is so good, and he is at number two. He is Kevin. 
And at number one this week in the top 10, rising to the top once again, he is always popular, the handsome boogeyman, not Jimmy Valiant. Let's go to him right now. Here at number one in the top 10 on this, the 100th episode spectacular of the 605 Super Podcast is a very popular man in show history, the handsome boogeyman, not Jimmy Valiant. And you hear the clapping. He is on the line right now. Boogeyman, welcome back to the Super Podcast. Oh, tell all the chickies not handsome's on the loose. They can run and hide, but they can't fly the coop. Ha <laughs> ha. Dicky do, dicky do. Woo, mercy. All right. A reprise of my most famous hit single, The Ballad of Not Handsome Boogie Jimmy, can now be yours from Columbia House, uh, along with 11 other selections for just one penny. Can your heart stand it, brother? Also available from Napster. Get yours today. Well, Boogie Man, those are uh, dated ways of getting music, but speaking of dated ways, here you are in the top 10 at number one. That means the listeners have gotten behind you once again and pushed you to the top of the top 10. Number one, 100th episode. What a momentous occasion. Woo! I feel good, Brian Lasto. All right. I feel like doing it. I feel like doing it to death. And when I say doing it to death, I mean this bit. Ha (laughs) ha. You know, on this momentous occasion, the Jimmy Not Handsome Boogeyman is going to drop his tights and fire a rocket daddy in tribute. Oh, Well, hold on, hold on now, uh, Boogeyman. I don't think anyone wants you to drop your pants here. Sky's the limit, brother. It seems like only yesterday that you and I began on this journey to get a lasto. Well, actually, the show existed for a very good while before you were ever on the show, Boogeyman. Uh, a, a very good point. As I pause to reflect, Originally, it was just you and David Bingenheimer, was it not? <laughs> it was not David Bingenheimer. It was me and David Bingenheimer. The Long Island Matt Mafia, Brian and Bing. No, no, hold on. It was me and David Bixenspan, and uh, oh, yes. we started yes. 605 together way back in 2015. Yes. David Bing- Bixenheimer, Bixenheimer Smith. His name is my name, too. <laughs> oh, yeah, you seem to be happy with yourself about that one, Boogeyman. Ah, uh, yeah. But then shortly thereafter, the change was made uptown and Handsome Jimbo joined the band. And the rest, they say, is history. It sure is. Well, speaking of history, you are at number one in the top ten. That, of course, means the fans have put you here once again. And Did he someone thought, say number one? Number, number one. one. Yes. Well, it's only fitting as I am forever number one in the hearts of the loyal 605 super mothershippers as they are in mine. I wish I could plant a great big sloppy kiss on every last one of you. <laughs> Almost everyone. Well, <laughs> yeah, okay, Boogeyman. Well, let's not uh, pick and choose here. But the listeners do yeah. love you. They have gotten behind you once again. They love hearing from you. You are one of the most popular people in the history of the Super Podcast. Any thoughts on that? Well, I, I pause and reflect, as I said. Uh, not just that, which uh, warms me to the cockles of my heart. And if you've ever had cold cockles, you know uh, what the difference is. But the summer, <laughs> speaking of getting colder, the summer slipped away on us, didn't it, brother? Uh, yeah, It did. It's uh, quickly... Yeah, Big Mom and I kept planning to visit you and the brown paper bag assassin out there at last manor <laughs> for one of your famous beach blast barbecues. <laughs> but say la vie, it just didn't happen this year. Summer went by fast. Or I should say it wasn't fast, it was sudden. Ah, there you go. A Gordon uh, Soli line. But unlike uh, who? But unlike Coca-Cola, <laughs> it's far from over. Not Boogie Jam 2019 rolls on, my brother. 
Still some gas in the tank. Yeah, we're getting ready to take this party on the road for our back-to-school tour with uh, what? lots of special guests such as J.J. French from Twisted Sister, Jimmy J.J. Walker, TV's Wonder Woman Linda Carter, Jason Hervey Jr., also known as El Hijo de Jason Hervey, and a whole host of others. Uh, at select stops on the tour, we got Carmen Electra, Kid and Play, uh, Pistol Pez and his sister Jody Watley, <laughs> not to mention two-thirds of Bananarama, uh, David San Martino, and the list goes on and on. She's Boogeyman. How did you put together this list of people that are... What is this, Boogeyman, not Boogeyman Jam 2019? 29, back to school tour. We all celebrating the 605 Superb Podcast 100th episode, and of course, my position of number one in the top 10. <laughs> Mercy. On that topic, Boogeyman, of course, you are at number one of the top 10. The fans, the what? listeners have put you here, and that, of course, means you will challenge for the championship against either the Magnificent One or Lord Apnea Hayes next week, right here on the Super Podcast. Next week? <laughs> you must be crazy. They ought to call you Crazy Brian. First, 100 episodes. Here's the 100 more. 100 more. I don't think I'm going to make it, but far stranger things have happened in wrestling, brother. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true, Boogeyman. Oh, Big Mama, crank up that hi-fi. I feel like singing. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it, Daddy. Let's do it. <laughs> oh, rolling into Mepo, GWA. I'm a rocker and a roller. A little funky Jew. Woo! Mercy! Ha <laughs> ha there he is at number one in the top 10, the handsome boogeyman, not Jimmy Valiant. And of course, being at number one means that next time the listeners get to vote for him against the champion to determine the next champion. And of course, the championship match this time is the reigning champion, the magnificent one versus Lord Apnea Hayes, who has joined the show and become very, very popular. The votes are in. They were tabulated. Much thanks to Jay Snockerado, the director of show research. The winner and still champion, the magnificent one. And we're going to go to him in Sunset Beach in just a moment. But first, let's hear a few words from Lord Apnea Hayes. Before we get to the man that won this week in the top 10 championship match, let's first talk to the man that was his opponent. Very popular. He got into the championship match in his first time out in the top 10. None other than... Lord Apnea Hayes, and I believe his lordship is on the line right now. Are you there, Lord Apnea Hayes? You know, Brian Oceus, it speaks to the low breeding, which results in my fall from grace. But I'll give the commoners out there one more chance to restore me to my former glory. Now, if you will, my time is extremely important. I assume you want to discuss some oddly shaped Cheetos or some such that you found around your apartment or odd shaped dust bunnies? Well, no, actually... Is that what we're here for? No, actually, Lord Abney Hayes, we were here because it was the top 10 for episode 100 of the Super Podcast. You were in the championship match, unfortunately. The Magnificent One defeated you. And here we are having a few moments with you before we get to 
Sunset Beach, Hawaii, and The Magnificent One. The Magnificent One is a formidable foe, as you know, and his parties are second to none. But just like a hot dog and much like a hamburger, a meal can't always be had in a bun. So this is what I say to you commoners. <laughs> Obsessed with your fast food and your meals on the go, consider your insides, for your loved ones are the ones that are going to suffer. All right, there's no now, Brian, if you don't mind, yeah. my time is very precious. <laughs> I'd like to let you peasants know what I'm up to. Please. Do you think you're up to that challenge of hearing some big words for a change, Brian Ocious? Well, hopefully they're not too big because your time is precious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my house peasant has the worst habit of butting in with his human-like laughter sometimes. <laughs> some people say it is like a, a female... Enjoying the throes of pleasure. <laughs> In that, any event, is that what I'm planning say? a luxury vacation. <laughs> Reginald is packing my bags into the Bentley at the moment. And we're going to sunny South Florida. Home of everything I think I shall enjoy. But I haven't checked out the top ten attractions yet. Maybe I'll read a few of them to you. And get some of your commonest suggestions about how I should spend my leisure time. Well, now, hold on. We, we're doing the top ten, not... You're reading a top, like a David Letterman top 10? What do you have? Regardless, I'm sure I'm not going to get to all 10 <laughs> off of Barry Rose, regardless. Although I think <laughs> irregardless flows off the tongue better. You peasants can decide in your off hours. <laughs> I have far better things to do. What should I do in Miami? Please advise. City half-day tour of Miami by bus with sightseeing crews. Why not make it three days if you really want to punish me? A half-day tour on a baking bus next to a man whose skin is the color of Bologna. No, thank you. Well, hold on. It doesn't necessarily have to be like that, Lord Hayes. I'm sure you can go on there with your family, sit next to them. Their skin won't be the color of Bologna. And maybe have a nice <laughs> time driving around Miami in an air-conditioned bus, seeing the sights. First of all, the last thing that you would have on a Lord Apnea Hayes trip is his family. Second of all, there's nothing wrong with having skin the color of a royal condiment such as my great-grandmother's liverwurst complexion. She was renowned in many, many counties. So you don't need to educate me. All right. Well, what else was on and this? this <laughs> Let me just tell you the last one, because I think <laughs> this week has been drastically underwritten. Much attention was paid to other hilarious characters. Oh, the Everglades Airboat Safari. How wondrous. Crammed into an airboat with the noise velocity of seven Boeing 7s in your eardrums. I wonder what I'd be the first to lose, my hearing or my foot to the alligator. It's not that bad. It's a fun experience going to the Everglades going on an airboat. Well, you know what I always say to my fans when you see me out in public? If you do, please ignore. <laughs> Is that what you always say <laughs> now, to your fans? Those are my loyal fans. Your loyal fans. Those are the ones I'm nice to. Well, your lordship, anything you want to say to the listeners of the 605 Super Podcast who voted you into the spot to get the title match now would have to hopefully vote for you again to be in the top 10 based on this stunning performance here today. Not my best, but you have to understand. 
our creator is a very, very busy man and only can be spread <laughs> so thin. But I will say, that's what made puppy dog Peliquin such a professional. Back then it was wrestling. What? Promotional consideration paid for by <laughs> medicated pads. Huzzah! Here he is having defeated Lord Apnea Hayes to defend his 605 Super Podcast Super Universe Championship. None other than the Magnificent One. And we're going to go all the way to Sunset Beach, Hawaii. I believe we have a connection via remote right now to the champion, the Magnificent One. Are you there, Magnificent One? The 100th anniversary coronation of the Magnificent One. One hundred years on the air for the six oh five. One of the greatest accolades of all time. Well, not exactly magnificent one. It's the one hundredth episode, not one hundred years on the air. Same to me. Advice for my competition, you say? I don't know. <laughs> Does the sun have a competition for being hot? Does a boob have a competition for being squeezable? It's just a fact of nature, like me, the magnificent one, the prince of darkness himself. I can't help it if I'm the most handsome man ever been born, most magnetic personality, the biggest muscle since anybody. Why don't you just yeah be as strong, be as big as me, be strong as a steel beam? There's your advice. Be more romantic than the moon. Knock yourself out. Be a, brighter than a thousand suns like I am, and then you can be me. What what can I possibly tell you? What a fucking stupid question. What is my <laughs> advice for my competition? That wasn't what my question. That wasn't... Does a dumb beetle have for a fucking red ant? <laughs> Magnificent one. Are they ever going to come up to my level? No. Well, what do you want me to do? That wasn't my question. I don't know where you got that question from. Does a tank come up to a Tonka toy and say, hey, one day, one day you could be all this? No, you can't. I'm going to reign for a thousand years. So let's get into it. Let's get into the celebration. I got everybody here. Everybody you've ever heard. Anybody in the wrestling business is here with me today. Do you have anyone in particular you would like for me to point my directional microphone to? To say hello to you. Uh, geez, I don't know. That if it's everyone in the wrestling industry, that's a very intimidating offer. Who would I like to uh, speak to? That's a, is Kelly Kelly there? No. <laughs> Instead... <laughs> As a matter of fact, the nearest person to me is none other than lactose intolerant, Bobby Jagas. Oh. Hey, Bobby, come over here for one second. You are the first name of a guest friend I've ever had on my top ten. You are the one. You are the sentence that launched my entire top ten reign. I owe everything to you, bro. Here is a Heineken, and here is some other stuff. So say hello to Brian. Hey, Brian. Talking to a real old-fashioned Kansas Jayhawk right now. You understand, you son of a bitch? <laughs> what was that other stuff he gave you? Oh, fuck. This is pretty good, Don. <laughs> there ain't any milk in this, is it? Fuck yeah, man. It's a milkshake. <laughs> there ain't any milk. I can't drink this shit. I'm lactose intolerant. That's right. You're lactose intolerant, Bobby Chaggers. How can I forget? I'm out, bitch. Well, it was great talking to you. Not only lactose intolerant, but he's, uh, I don't know, he talks like Jesse Pinkman. All of a sudden. But there he is, lactose intolerant Bobby Jaggers. What a delight to have him here. Is there anyone else? Doesn't even matter. Biggest crowd you ever saw against the gorilla himself. 
listen to this. And I just want to wish all you poor people out there a wonderful 100th anniversary of the 605 Super Pod. You know, it reminds me of when I came down from the mountains after the war. Again with the fucking mountains. Oh, when I came down from the fucking mountains. Hey, you better show some respect, Sonny Boy, or I'll fuck you up. Who is this? Is this ECW Bruno again? Well, that was the whole bit, Brian. I'm already done with my piece. I've taken my earpiece out, you slime, because of the kind of show you run around here. And I, <laughs> you enjoyed it, didn't you? You enjoyed the cursing and the stretcher matches and the lingerie and everything. Well, you can have it if you want to walk around hosting a podcast with a needle coming out of your ass. I'm going back to Brutzi, Bologna, Pittsburgh, where I'm appreciated. All right. Peace out, motherfuckers. Contact me again, I'll fuck you up. It sounds like this is a great party you're having, Magnificent One. Oh, it's about to get better. The Toastmaster General of the Immoral Majority just showed up. It's Howard Lee Roth, the world's most flamboyant wrestling historian. Howard. Hey, everybody, it's Hematite Howard. Just like Diamond Dave, but only half as bright. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, Brian, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about the merits of Kenny Omega and Joe Stetcher or Banksy and Michelangelo. We're all just a bunch of artists trying to use the canvas as we see fit. <laughs> okay, now this is Whoa! Howard Lee. <laughs> you know, I got myself a brand new 605 scarf right here. Uh, that's right. Okay. You know, a little known fact, Brian, is that it takes exactly the time to watch a wrestling match that it takes to eat a Swanson's TV dinner. I did not know that. Well, that, that's and one more and one more thing I want to Ross explain to you. You yes. know, in the olden days, Brian, the early days of wrestling were very complicated, but they were very simple at the same time. Yakitori vajanga, the art of looking good while saying words, that was invented in the ancient Mesopotamian days. But everybody knows that. I digress. Well, you know, the old days when man had only two principal means of communication. You know what those were, Brian? I, Smoke signals and professional wrestling. Well, thank you. Howard Lee Roth, I believe you said your name was. He was tight, Howard, baby, just like a diamond, but half as bright. Boy, Magnificent One, I don't know if you can hear me, but what a party you're having over there. I can't imagine how all these different personalities can possibly coexist in the private party setting at Sunset Beach, Hawaii today. As far as I'm concerned, there is only one man who I can use to hand the show back to you and end this incredible inconvenience upon my life so I can dip my toes and feel my hose. So anyway, here he is, man, to say goodbye, and I will see you later, but not before. It all comes down with my best friend, S&M, Bob Cottle. Very popular here on the show. Hey, fans, thanks so much for turning out for my 100th birthday celebration. You know, I've been with my beautiful wife, Helen, for at least 93 of those years, and people always ask me what our secret is. Well, folks, the secret is out. We owe it all to our flawlessly balanced anal skin tone, David. Whoa. Our standing appointment at Vicky Sue's Anal Bleaching Emporium and Curio Shop in Mecklenburg, West Virginia, continues to serve us well. It really does, fans. So until next time, Don, <laughs> we'll see you next time. Thank you so much, the classic elder statesman of professional wrestling himself. A mid-Atlantic legend, S&M Dungeon Master, Bob Cottle. Well, Magnificent One, I congratulate you on this gathering that you are having today. It sounds like you're having a great time. It sounds like everyone else there is having a great time. It gets mighty quiet when you get back on the phone. I don't know if you're in a different room or <laughs> what the deal is over there with that party, but 
Congratulations. Once again, you are the 605 Super Podcast, Super Universe Champion. And next time, of course, you'll be going up against the handsome Boogeyman once again. Well, Boogeyman, you emaciated piece of shit. Please hear my comments at the beginning and know why. That my trademark motto is, I am going to reign for a thousand years. And then I say, mahalo, bitches. There you hear it, the Magnificent One and Lord Apnea Hayes. And next time, it is the Magnificent One once again versus the Handsome Boogeyman. You can vote at Facebook.com slash Super Podcast. But with that, let's now move on to one of the most popular segments in show history. In the News! With Jim Cornette, the host of In the News. I believe he is on the line right now. Am I correct in this assessment? Of course you are correct in this assessment. I've been with you the whole fucking time. Well, the way this works is we go through classic wrestling newspaper articles revealing lost stories. Lost stories that time has forgotten. Wild stories. Lost, forgotten, obscure. Various personalities. Some of this comes from the research that Scott Teal has done with the Crowbar Press Archives. Some of this actually this week comes from research that I have done. And let's get going with our very first. You. Me. You. Me. This first story comes from the (laughs) Courier-Journal, Louisville, Kentucky, July 15th, 1965. Wrestler Valentine faces three charges. All things are as they were then, except you are there. Oh, that's the wrong program. Anyway, <laughs> the trial of Johnny Valentine, 36, a 240-pound wrestler arrested Tuesday night at Convention Center, was continued to August 30 yesterday in police court. Police Sergeant Tom Denton said Valentine became violent after the wrestler and his opponent, Gene Kaniski, were disqualified in their match. Valentine was charged with being drunk in a public place, disorderly conduct, and assault and battery. So it doesn't look good for Johnny uh, being arrested (laughs) for being drunk in public immediately after his match, does it? No, not too good. Who's running in Louisville in 65? That was the last year, I think, pretty much, that Bruiser, before he gave up, because Kaniski was working the Midwest at the time for Bruiser. So was Valentine. Um. Uh, you know, and and that was one of the intermittent. This may have been another one of those things that just led to Bruiser saying, "Fuck it, fuck Louisville." I I had not heard of this incident until this point in time because it's been forgotten. It was lost. It's obscure. Bruiser's style of wrestling is so different than the Memphis style, the Jarrett style, whatever you want to call it. How did it get over for those years where Bruiser was running Louisville? Well, it didn't because he quit. Remember, that's the thing. It only lasted a year. Um, It was only a year. Wow. Well, because he got the territory in 64, right? Barnett had been... The local promotion, Louisville always did best, and traditionally up until the modern time, up until now, always did best when there was a strong local promotion. And uh, thanks to the research that John Cosper has done, uh, through the 30s, 40s, and into the 50s, it was the Allen Athletic Club, Haywood Allen. And then later on, his his uh, assistant in command took over when he passed away, uh, Francis McDonough. But finally... Uh, and his wife. When, and his wife, yes. But then, what was it? He got out of the business in, what, 55-ish, 56-ish, right after all those big crowds that they drew, bringing in... Baron Leone and Luthez and the TV stars and doing the Derby Eve shows and everything. 
the 50s, they had some big crowds. And then when he retired for a, a brief period of time, uh, it was announced in Ring Magazine that Wee Willie Davis had gotten a wrestling promoter's license in Louisville and was going to open back up. Apparently, that did not happen. But instead, Louisville became part of the big Midwest territory that Barnett was running. And, you know, it, it was along with Indianapolis and, and uh, Chicago. And so it was more grouped into a Midwest rather than as a Southern Territory city. When Barnett left and went to Australia in 64, Bruiser got Indiana. And along with it came Louisville and the Sheik got Michigan and Ohio. And then the Bruiser and Ganya split Chicago. But the point is, by this was July of 65, pretty much after that, I've, I've, we've tried to you know research, but you can't find, every once in a while, you'll find mention in 65 and uh, uh, that area of an intermittent wrestling card. And usually they were like a girls match, a preliminary match, and a tag match, or maybe four matches with you know two singles on top. They were small cards. They, uh, the business was not doing well. And then by around this time, and maybe they got a, you know, Valentine gets drunk and pops a cop, and they just said, fuck it. Uh, and the town was mostly dark. I've, I've looked through old TV guide listings, and I can see that occasionally either wrestling from Chicago or just wrestling was listed in the late 60s, but it didn't seem like they, they were running. So... Anyway, and then Jarrett, that's when he opened up in 70, uh, when he, you know, found out from Nick and Roy that there was a band of towns, Evansville, Louisville, Lexington, that was dark. And that's when Bruiser found out someone was running Louisville, and he said, hey guys, what about well, me? Well, no, he, he, he waited until they were making money first. <laughs> you see? Well, you know what? Let's stay on the topic of the Bruiser and his promotion. Let's go to this column. This is from Chicago. It was syndicated. This I pulled from the Kingsport, Tennessee newspaper, February 5th, 1975. But I will add this. This is Bob Green's American Scene column, which I used to read in the Louisville Times, the afternoon paper, but he was based out of Chicago. So this is probably the reason for this coverage. Shots in the crowd. Chicago, when I heard that five wrestling fans had been shot by a gunman during the matches at the International Amphitheater here over the weekend, I must admit that my first thoughts did not go to the victims. Rather, I found myself trying to guess what the reaction would be from Bob Luce, the famous TV wrestling show host. Luce, <laughs> <laughs> who speaks exclusively in a terrible yowl and reacts to the sight of bloodshed and violence much as a hungry pup reacts to raw steak... <laughs> was the impresario of the ill-fated Saturday Night Wrestling card, so I called Luce on Monday and made arrangements to meet him at the Executive House Bar. His period of mourning seemed to be over. At the appointed hour, Luce was waiting for me, working on a glass of tomato juice and wearing a red plaid sports coat, yellow and white striped tie, and an orange, brown, blue, and yellow floral patterned, or yellow and white striped shirt, and an orange, brown, blue, and yellow floral patterned tie. His shriek, while toned down perhaps a decibel or two from the volume utilized on his television show, was nevertheless the loudest noise in the barroom. He was kneeing the underside of the table, always a sure sign that he is ready to talk. He needed little prompting to begin his soliloquy. It was a blackmail from 38 to 40 from what the lieutenant of police told me, Luce said. He was firing from the balcony. He was shooting at the ring. He was trying to shoot the referee. He fired two shots. One went through a boy's neck. Then it grazed a woman's neck. Then it ricocheted off the ring. 
It hit a boy's arm. <laughs> the second hit a woman's finger. She was waving. Then it lodged in a woman's chest. The people who were hit, three white, one Spanish, one black. I get a very good cross-section. <laughs> <laughs> it's a heck of a way to look at it for Bob Luce. <laughs> <laughs> I asked Luce if he thought that the shooting incident would keep fans away from his wrestling cards. Even the shooter wasn't taking it out on his fellow fans, Lou said. He hit the fans by mistake. He was aiming at the ring. He was trying to hit the referee. There's another card February 7th. The Ox against the Bruiser. Heenan is back in a tag match. The fringe fan may be deterred, not the fan who wants to go. A car goes off the track and kills 14. He's back the next race. The wrestling fan is a pretty hardy fan. The Bruiser has no fear. Yeah, don't worry. He's not trying to shoot you. He's trying to shoot the ring. Don't worry. <laughs> Is this a big famous story? What do you know about this story, Jim? This was the the uh, 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 Bockwinkle and Vern Heenan was at ringside. Um, this guy uh, apparently just went crazy with whatever that Bockwinkle or Heenan were perpetrating on Vern Gagne, and he was up in the bleachers or the you know higher riser seats, whatever the fuck. It was the International Amphitheater. And he shoots down at the ring. And when Bobby told me about this, because I asked him about it, he said when he heard the first pop and he realized that, you know, said he heard he saw it because the guy shot through the ring. He missed everybody in the fucking ring and missed Bobby on the floor. And he was hitting all those people on the other side. So Bobby, when he heard the first pop and he saw some shit happen on the other side, so he just ducked under the ring. <laughs> but fucking... <laughs> Fucking Bachwick, apparently they all rolled out and the guy, you know, in the time it took him to fire the fucking two or three shots or whatever the fuck he, he fired or five, uh, you know, everybody was out of the ring and underneath the ring and, and stayed there until they figured it out. But, um, but yes, that's, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> there've been people shot at before at wrestling, but they never hit. That's the same thing as a good, good guy with a gun is going to stop the bad guy with a gun, right? The bad guy with the gun can't hit the people he's shooting at to begin with. What makes you think the good guy's going to? They shot at Ron Wright one night, but it was a guy on the floor shooting up at him in the ring and missed him, and they found the bullet holes. The people were up in the bleachers, right? And like a foot above the head level of the people sitting in the back row of bleachers, the fucking bullets lodged. Wow. That's so, you know, and... At least they didn't have AK-47s back there, AR-15s, or whatever the fuck they are. Well, imagine if the tragedies today with gun violence happened and you had Bob Luce on TV. I mean, you read that like Bob Luce, but it's impossible not to because the quotes, the sound bites, <laughs> they're Bob Luce quotes. They're really the way he talked. Yes, that was exactly the way he talked. <laughs> Except I wasn't yelling quite as loud, and I don't have that fucking Midwest accent. Ah, bloodshed. It's going to be wild, folks. Tell them Bobo. Tell them Bobo. (laughs) Right now, I got Moose Cholak. Moose. (laughs) Nom, 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 nom. (laughs) When he's eating the sandwich. (laughs) All right, well, let's stay in Chicago. December 7th, 1946. Wrestling promoter sues Sheldon Clark, Chicago Associated Press. Fred Kohler, a wrestling promoter, today filed a mandamus suit in circuit court against Sheldon Clark, chairman of the Illinois State Athletic Commission, demanding the right to hold wrestling contests and championships. Roy D. Keene and Fred W. Turk 
Members of the commission also were named. The commission has ruled that wrestling bouts were not contests and required promoters to advertise them as exhibitions. Kohler, in his suit, declared it is arbitrary, unreasonable, and discriminatory for boxing promoters to hold championship matches while the wrestling group is denied the same right. Was this a big battle in a lot of states, the whole idea of an exhibition? You know, obviously on WWF television, you know, for many years, they said it was an exhibition at the very beginning. Was this yes. a big deal with the Athletic Commission in a lot of states? Um, no, just in the the big one. New York was always a pissy Athletic Commission and, and always was fucking with wrestling because they were hoity-toity. Um, and obviously, uh, Fred Kohler won this one because they had plenty of championship matches in Chicago over the next 15 years, including Rogers and O'Connor. But, um, you know, the, it, it was really, the. I mean, most of the time, you had promoters had problems with the athletic commissions over fees and fucking restrictions or, you know, a guy gets out of hand and the commission wants to, you know, fine him or suspend him, but he's figured in and, you know, all that stuff. But in, I guess the first time I'd heard of it in Illinois, but also in New York, they would say, oh, it has to be an exhibition. You can't, you know, uh, call this a contest. And I think that was basically in the Northeast and maybe here as as we see in Chicago. But they lost that one, and they made a lot of money off wrestling. It, think about this. I don't know how healthy the Chicago wrestling business was in the mid-40s. But since Fred Kohler was just, at that point, just getting started, right, uh, he he made millions over the next 15 years. And the state of Illinois got a huge chunk of money off of wrestling. So it was probably once that he got going and was doing business, it was more in their best interest to fucking make sure that wrestling was healthy instead of fucking with it. Well, Fred Kohler certainly did make a lot of money, and let's talk about that. Let's continue with Chicago. From the Chicago Tribune, December 18th, 1960. Dollars rain on wrestling promoter. Professional wrestling made a comeback in 1960, which exceeded the fondest hopes of National Wrestling Alliance members in 25 United States areas and Canada and Mexico. Renewal of contracts for television exposure at the bouts, both live and taped, help in this upsurge of the greatest show in the ring, to use the words of Chicago's Fred Kohler. Kohler, who at 57 is observing his 31st year as a mat promoter, Hasn't had it so good since 1957 when he lost his $50,000 per year TV time. Money has been rolling in at box offices throughout the NWA empire, of which Kohler is a member in good standing with promotional rights in Illinois, Wisconsin, and Indiana. At 13 major shows this year in Chicago alone, Kohler drew crowds totaling a record 156,543. 10 indoors in the amphitheater in the stockyards, and three outdoors in White Sox Park. Gate receipts grossed $495,731, giving the Illinois Athletic Commission $49,000 in revenue. The year's largest attendance was realized at the first open-air card in Comiskey Park, home of the White Sox, July 29, when 30275 contributed to a record $89,675 to watch the performance of such Matt Stalwarts as Pat O'Connor and Yukon Eric. Kohler, who as a result was awarded a trophy as the Wrestling Promoter of the Year, credits revival of interest to the weekly presentation of taped film shows in Bridgeport, Connecticut on national TV. Now, hold on, Jim. Let me stop you right there before we continue with this because there's some interesting information in there. 
specifically the gate receipts for $495,731. That's certainly what he reported, because if it says that he paid $49,000 to the Athletic Commission, yes, there's the 10%. Yes. What do you think of these numbers that you're? And that's another. Well, that's another reason why that uh, the Illinois Commission has always been looked down on because they took ten percent, which is like twice as much as every other commission. So promoters never liked the Illinois Commission for that. Thirteen shows uh, totaling one hundred and fifty-six thousand people. Now you you had a couple of outdoor shows to skew that average, but that pretty much tells me that he sold out the amphitheater ten times and and did a couple of bigger crowds at the ballpark. You know, the other interesting thing is just pointing out that this is the best year he had since 57 where he lost his TV deal or his, his national TV deal, I guess. So that's a, yes, that's pretty interesting. The fact that this is 60, you know, the big Buddy Rogers match is about to happen right around the corner. He's really getting heated up again. And then he's about to lose everything within just a few years. Jack Pfeffer and then Bruiser and Ganya take over and Snyder. Yeah, but um, the $50,000 TV contract was what he got for the network show from the network, right? So that was that contract, but he was still uh, showing television programs in Chicago to promote his events, but he's using the tapes from Bridgeport, apparently. Well, actually, let's pick up the story right there. And oh, and and one one more thing. Um, If he grossed $495,000, let's say $500,000 for wrestling in Chicago, in 1960, that would be easily $3 million in today's money, somebody can do the math, in one city for 13 shows. And he ran a lot more than those 13 shows in that city. Oh, well, yeah, that's just the big ones. Yeah. That's not counting the Marigold Arena and all the little you know spot shows and subsidiaries. But anyway. Let's get back to the story. We go back and do a little bit more about the TV. Kohler paid $2,000 monthly to the sponsors for the right to exploit the programs in the Chicago area. In addition, he obtained the services of featured wrestlers performing on the Bridgeport shows, including such villains as Johnny Valentine and the fabulous kangaroos Al Costello and Roy Heffernan. Another factor was appearance on the Chicago mat scene of another group headed by Eddie Quinn, veteran Boston and Montreal promoter. Quinn collaborated with James D. Norris, owner of Chicago Stadium, in the presentation of a new series of cards in the stadium. Quinn worked out a deal to stage a one-hour show from a Chicago video studio each Saturday afternoon. These programs were used as a showcase for the cards offered without TV in the stadium. As soon as Kohler heard of the plan, he attempted to buy commercial time on the Saturday program, but without success. When station WNBQ began televising that taped show from Bridgeport, Fred bought in. He purchased the half hour starting at midnight. The Quinn-Norris operation in the stadium was discontinued in August, but Kohler continued on with unabated success. His explanation that TV exposure is chief factor in the Matt Games revival may sound odd to fight fans who are convinced their sport was killed by the cathode tube. However, Matt promoters like wrestlers learn to cooperate with a potential opponent. (laughs) Well, let me stop you there again before we go to the last part of this article. I didn't know too much about the Eddie Quinn attempt to take over Chicago here in 1960. Did you know a lot about it? Well, no, as a matter of fact, and it didn't last long, apparently. Uh, What did it say? Uh, uh, Did he say how long he lasted? It was discontinued in August. It didn't say exactly when it started, but it was a short-lived deal. But that probably explains why that Fred Kohler went to the Capitol Wrestling Group in the Northeast and Vince Sr. and said, hey, uh, send me your talent, your show's on here, and we'll work together. 
Dumont paid him 50000 a year. Now he's paying 24000 a year to sponsor the Bridgeport show. So it's an interesting change of uh, turn of events there. But yes. Let's get back to this last column uh, here in this article because he has a new star in Chicago. Bearcat Wright was Kohler's biggest gate attraction during the year. He made 10 appearances in Chicago, including participation in three Australian tag team matches with Sweet Daddy Siki as his partner. He also appeared against Buddy Rogers on that $89,000 card in Comiskey Park. Kohler's 1960 outdoor finale September 16th saw him perform a masterstroke when he signed Walter Killer Kowalski, member of rival Quinn's stable for a featured event against Wright. Kowalski had been built up as a bad boy. Consequently, the clash pulled 26,731 fans through the turnstiles. Receipts were $81,549, second only to the July 29 high of 89 grand. Thus, Wright in 1961 may be given the opportunity to become the first Negro to gain NWA recognition as world heavyweight champion. Pat O'Connor retained these laurels during 1960, while Rogers is heralded as United States holder of the crown. Danny Hodge of Tulsa, Oklahoma, is recognized as junior heavyweight title holder. See, there's something really interesting, because when we talk about Bearcat Wright, especially when we look at his Hall of Fame credentials and what he did, you forget just how important and how big he was for a brief period of time in Chicago. He's all over the Wrestling Life magazine. He was a major star, and it wasn't just Pat O'Connor and Buddy Rogers that drew a big house at an outdoor stadium in Chicago during this era. They were running these big stadium shows all the time. Yeah, and well, and Bearcat Wright, at the same time, he was huge in, in the Northeast in, off that TV show. He was big in Washington and Baltimore, and that's why he got that opportunity in Los Angeles, which was a huge money territory in the early 60s, to be the champion there, and then the famous incidents with Blassie and et cetera. But he was uh, one of the bigger box office attractions in business for several years. And probably why that he didn't want to do a job and probably why then once he got the reputation that he wouldn't do a job, that he quickly was not one of the biggest box office attractions. Do you vote for him for the Hall of Fame, for the Observer Hall of Fame? Boy, you know, once again, if if Bobo Brazil is in, as groundbreaking as he was, Bearcat Wright was a bigger gate attraction than Bobo ever was for a short period of time. Bobo lasted a whole lot longer. Uh, you almost, you maybe now have to, especially looking at this. Well, let's continue on from here. We'll continue our evaluation of Bearcat right in the future, but let's go to a story from 1987. We've talked a lot about this on the Jim Cornette drive-thru where fans get involved and sometimes get maybe hit or pushed or who knows what happens, but it happened here, 1987 with the AWA. Fan awarded $12,500 after wrestler bops him with belt. Sorehead professional wrestler Buddy the Playboy Rose was so mad when he lost a match that he conked a fan on the head with a 30-pound belt buckle, and it's going to cost him $12,500. A Denver, Colorado judge awarded the money to family man Steve Ingleton after the burly 275-pound wrestler didn't respond to his damage suit. It was a dumb thing for him to do, and I damn sure wasn't going to let him get away with it, said Ingleton, who is 100 pounds lighter than Rose. Ingleton, an ex-Marine, was sitting in the third row with his wife when the hulking wrestler stormed out of the ring after losing a match. We had eyeball-to-eyeball contact, said Ingleton. I was just grinning at Buddy Rose, thinking to myself, what a maggot that guy is. (laughs) 
Without any warning at all, Engleton said the massive wrestler whirled around and whacked him on top of his head with the 30-pound buckle of the World Wrestling Federation's Tag Team Championship belt. <laughs> I gotta tell you the truth, I saw quite a few stars, said Engleton. My head was spinning like a blender. He blindsided me, and it was a good lick. I never knew what hit me until later. You take a 275-pound guy swinging a 30-pound belt, it puts the hurt on you. He conked me real good. Blood was everywhere, down the front and back of my clothes, he said. I tried to go after him, but I was dizzy and felt faint. Ingleton said Rose gave him the finger and cursed at him as he was escorted out of the wrestling arena for medical attention. Five stitches were necessary to close the, the head cut. Ingleton said he missed three days' work and had throbbing headaches for about two months. Ingleton stopped going to wrestling matches for seven months. I couldn't stay away any longer because I love the game, but I don't sit near the ring. I saw Rose wrestle several times after that, and it did my heart good every time I saw him get creamed. Well, there you hear it, the <laughs> usual story, fan minding his own business when the heel wrestler just decides to wallop him for no out of good nowhere. reason. Out of, no <laughs> out of nowhere. Cinderella story, out of nowhere. He was just thinking what a maggot he was. He didn't actually do anything or say anything, but Jim... The idea that a wrestler would get hit with a lawsuit and just not respond, was that a frequent thing in the territory days and especially the 80s? Oh, God, yeah, you just leave the territory. See, that, that, was, that was why in some cases, if you saw a top guy suddenly leave, you know, and, and it's seeming in the middle of things, it was either over money or he got a lawsuit. Because they... It, for one thing, the, the the excuse here the guy had, I was just standing there and suddenly, well, that was the guy in Altoona. He was standing by the railing taking pictures when suddenly I ran over to him and began smashing him over the head with the tennis racket. Actually, he hopped the rail and had already tackled Bobby. But you can't say that. And, you know, in those days, if you, especially if the promoter was pissed at you or didn't want to cover your attorney, you'd have to cover it on your own. And it was cheaper to just go get a fucking spot somewhere else than hire an attorney. And once you got out of the way, they can't find you. They don't know what your real name is. The office says, oh, geez, we paid him by money order, you know, or whatever, the post office box, or whatever the fuck. You just leave the territory. That's why the Road Warriors came into existence when Matt Bourne and, Ar and Arn Anderson were going to get the push as a heel tag team in Atlanta, and Matt Bourne got in trouble with the underage girl and just left the territory. If they won't come after you for an underage girl, I don't know that they'll come after you for whacking a guy overhead with a belt, especially when the cops probably saw what really happened. Were there guys, though, that like in the 90s would return to a town and find out they had an outstanding warrant for the last 15 years? Um, no, because well, you got a, stat a statue, as they say, of limitations. So, you know, every once in a while you go back if the heat was off. Sometimes you go back under a different gimmick. And nobody would know it was the same guy. Well, Jim, for our next story, let's go to a rather lighthearted story. This is from the Clearwater Sun, Saturday, March 8th, 1996. Golden Boy shares birthday with some kids. Clearwater, a big guy brought a lot of joy into the hearts of some little kids Friday afternoon. Golden Boy Chick Donovan celebrated his 39th birthday by giving his International World Wrestling Association Championship belt to the Chichi Rodriguez Foundation as 50 youngsters looked on with smiling, admiring eyes. An abused child once died in Donovan's huge arms when he was a paramedic in Texas. Since then, he has reached out to help troubled young people. Donovan apparently was moved 
when he learned of Chi-Chi's program, which enjoys tremendous success, turning around the lives of abused and troubled youths, said Bill Hayes, president and co-founder of the foundation. Donovan has told Hayes he wants to raise money to build a gymnasium to give youngsters like Chi-Chi's kids a place to work out. Take care of your body and your body will take care of your soul, Donovan told the kids after he played a round of golf with them at the Glen Oaks Golf Course. The kids were all excited about the belt, said Hayes. This guy's on TV wrestling. He's a hero to them. Donovan didn't go empty-handed on his birthday. The kids presented him with a big cake decked out with 39 candles. So, 39. You know, it's funny, Jim. When I turned 39, my father called me up. And I answered the phone. I said, hello. And he said, Jack. I didn't know why he was saying Jack. I didn't know if he thought he called the wrong number, if he was drinking Jack. I didn't know what the story was. Jack Benny. I said, Dad, it's me. He goes, no, Jack Benny, you're 39. Yeah. So is that the deal with Chick Donovan? What are the chances he was 39 in 1996? Actually, no, this is 1986. Oh, this is 1986. You ah. have read this incorrectly, and I'm going to do this math. That was 33 years ago. That That is correct. It was his 39th birthday because Chick Donovan, who I just saw in Charlotte, North Kakalaka at the gathering, told me he, he was 72. All right. So actually, this is accurate. I apologize to the Donovan family as well as Chi-Chi's kids. For uh, getting the wrong year on this. But now, if it had been 1996, we'd have some issues there. He'd be shaven. See, that's why I thought it was funny. I thought because everyone always talks about how Chick Donovan is so old and he still is, you know, Chick Donovan. If he actually took on the Jack Benny gimmick of he's always 39. <laughs> I thought that's what made it really funny. But actually, <laughs> some, some people uh, claim that Chick Donovan, under another name, wrestled Frank Gotch in 1905. And he's really some type of undead uh, vampire. Well, time will tell, but Jim, before we wrap up things this week here for the special episode 100 in the news, we have a special feature that you're going to be reading. It is an article by you entitled, The Road Warriors Are Finished. The Road Warriors Are Finished by Jim Cornette. Photos by Paul Heyman. Editor's note, the views expressed in this article are those of famous wrestling manager Jim Cornette and do not necessarily reflect the views of this publication nor its editorial staff. It does, however, reflect the views of Paul Heyman, who wrote this entire article. By the way, the editorial staff, Paul Heyman was, I believe, the editorial staff of this. Yes, yes. Wrestling Power issue from 1987. Yes. When the editors of this magazine approached me about doing a special feature for this issue, they thought they'd have to pay me a small fortune. After all, the viewpoints of wrestling's number one manager can't come cheap. But just to show my appreciation for their good taste as to who they asked to do columns, they didn't ask Baby Doll or Paul Ellering now, did they? I decided to give them a break. So here I am, Jim Cornette, manager of the NWA World's Tag Team Champions, the Midnight Express. Jim Cornette, one of the finest physical specimens in the sports world today. Jim Cornette, the man with wrestling's indestructible bodyguard, Big Bubba Rogers. It's come to my attention that Paul Ellering's muscle-bound freaks, the Road Warriors, are coming after my tag team champions, beautiful Bobby and lover boy Dennis. The Road Warriors, who with their manager, Paul Ellering, think they're so indestructible, so untouchable, so invulnerable, the very same warriors who were left on their backs by the four horsemen. The very same road warriors who were beaten to a bloody Paul Bavin and Nikita Koloff and Crusher Khrushchev. So let's throw out the theory that the warriors are unbeatable, unstoppable, or invulnerable. (laughs) 
<laughs> he likes those words, don't he? It does. Um, it does read like a poem promo. I gotta say, the the four horsemen don't buy that, and they've got proof. And the Russians don't buy it, and they've got proof too. The road warriors have been so impressive on television, beating up guys like Randy Mulkey, haven't they? Well, I'd like to see them dominate a match against the Midnight Express. I can tell you now, ladies and gentlemen, they won't. And you know why? Because while the Warriors are indeed strong, they are not agile. Loverboy, Dennis, and beautiful Bobby are strong wrestlers. Maybe not exactly as strong as the Warriors, but they are agile. While the Warriors cannot work effectively within the rules, both Dennis and Bobby are fine scientific wrestlers who can also brawl with anyone, even the Warriors. The Warriors do possess good teamwork. I got to give them that. But the Midnight Express has been around just as long as the Road Warriors, and we are the ones with the tag team belts, aren't we? The Warriors have only proven themselves in the old Georgia area and the AWA, and now they've come to the NWA. The Midnight Express <laughs> has dominated such areas as Mid-South, parentheses, UWF, and World Class, and has humiliated such names as the Fantastics, the Rock and Roll Express, the PYTs. How do they... <laughs> and not to mention Sunshine's entire army in Texas. And while we're on the subject of Sunshine, God damn, this is brutal. <clears throat> Don't you think one of the greatest moments in professional wrestling history was when I taught that baby doll a lesson? Huh? I mean, first of all, I don't even think baby doll's a woman. Maybe, just maybe she's taking a few of those helpers that those Russian women take for the Olympics. <laughs> Maybe just maybe her voice has been getting a little deeper. Baby doll, I know, and the rest of the world knows that slowly but surely you're becoming a man. <laughs> Did I mention I didn't write this? But let's let's not waste my valuable time talking about baby doll. Oh, good Lord. Or her out-of-shape master, Dusty Rhodes. Let's talk about a man who Dusty Rhodes used a lethal weapon against. Yes, let's talk about a man who took Dusty Rhodes' best shot and remained standing. I'm telling you, of course, about Big Bubba Rogers, my bodyguard. You know, when Mama sent Bubba down to watch my back for me, I had no idea just how unbelievable this man truly was. But then I saw Dusty Rhodes hit Bubba with a chair. Dot, 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 dot. A chair! And Bubba just stand there. And believe me when I tell you, shouldn't it be stood there? It shouldn't and be Bubba just stand there. I don't know yeah. why. And believe me when I tell you, I had to almost beg Bubba to get out of the ring, even when Dusty and Magnum T.A. were swinging those big shovels. Bubba Rogers is not a man, he's a monster. After all, it only took one punch from Bubba to knock Baby Doll's pride and joy, the warlord, out cold. And as for the warlord, why has he chosen Baby Doll as his manager? What are her managerial capabilities? Can she negotiate a contract for the man? I doubt it. Can she personally supervise his training? I doubt it. What, therefore, can she do for him? Let me clarify this. Now, <laughs> in order to figure this one out, <laughs> maybe we should take a look at Baby Doll's background. She first appeared in Texas as Gino Hernandez's bodyguard. That's a joke to start with. Then this loyal bodyguard, the loyal and trustworthy employee of Gino Hernandez, ups and leaves him for his former tag team partner, Tully Blanchard, who is wrestling here in the NWA. Then she tries to start trouble between Tully and J.J. Dillon, a fine wrestling manager and business advisor, and she hooks up the dirtiest wrestler in the history of the great this great sport, and she hooks up 
the dirtiest wrestler in the history of this great sport, Dusty Rhodes, one of what she hooked him up with. Now, I certainly wouldn't call Baby Doll a very stable person, would you? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> and here's this warlord trying to make a career out of professional wrestling, and he turns to this unstable woman for guidance. One of the first things you learn to do as a manager is provide something stable for your wrestlers. There's certainly some shit from the stable here. <laughs> What's Baby Doll providing for Warlord? Maybe she cleans his pots and pans. Maybe she waxes the kitchen floor when he's done tracking up the house with his muddy biker boots. I don't know, and quite frankly, I don't want to know. As far as I'm concerned, Baby Doll is just another woman who's trying to make a name for herself in a man's world, and she's going to learn the hard way what it's like to fail. Warlord is also going to learn a lesson. He's going to learn that it takes not only raw talent and ability, but good, steady guidance to further a career in this great sport. And as for the Road Warriors, the Midnight Express still holds the world's tag team championship, and when Loverboy Dennis and Beautiful Bobby get finished with the Road Warriors, I'm going to send their makeup kit home to Mama to mount in my trophy display. After all, it's probably the greatest honor the Road Warriors will ever receive. All right, Jim, this article from Wrestling Power, 1987. Obviously, Paul Heyman knows a lot about the different things you did in your career, but how do you, how do you rank this Jim Cornette fan fiction that, written that, by Paul Heyman? That read like a goddamn witness statement at a, to a fucking patrolman <laughs> late at night somewhere. And another thing she did. <laughs> what the fuck? Hey, I'm glad he's polished up his... his uh, literary capabilities since then if you think about it, it is very ecw you know i'm feuding with baby doll baby doll's like me <laughs> oh she's a man you know like all of a sudden there's that big turn there at the end <laughs> well i just i just want everybody to know that i didn't say any of that stuff so i cannot be held accountable for being trans transphobic or uh ogrephobic or whatever the fuck it is that's right well as we wrap up this episode of In the News, Jim, any closing words from you, the anchor of the In the News desk? I'd just like to say that the next time you see here in the news, I will be on assignment. <laughs> so <laughs> if, if there's any more Heyman fucking uh, uh, publications here in, in the In the News segment next time. But thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your support. It is now time for an update into the search for Yo Mamba the Jungle Savage. Of course, this search has hit multiple dead ends. Mark Guleen, the leader of the House of Guleen, has disappeared. We don't know where he is. We know that he knows who Yo Mamba is. He has not revealed it. Terry Garvin Sims, a friend of the show, unfortunately passed away before he was going to reveal who Yo Mamba the Jungle Savage was. We think we've narrowed it down. We believe it may be a student from the Bill Dundee Wrestling School that had Terry Garvin Sims as a student that Marcoline attended. I think maybe Todd Morton attended and a few other people. So we're still searching for this man. And in the midst of this search, we have this big update today because a couple of listeners have gone out and done some investigative work on their own. And we have evidence of this, in fact. So let me introduce them right now. First, on the line... Ed Demko. Ed, thanks for being here today. Hey, thanks for having me, Brian. I really appreciate it. Big fan of the show for a long time, so this is awesome. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And <laughs> let me also welcome to the show, Stephen Javorski. Thank you for being here, and thank you for sitting through that very long-winded intro. No problem, Brian. Thanks for having me. Uh, day one, 605 right here. So 
Well, thank you very much. And hearing that from both of you, that you guys are longtime listeners, I'm assuming that your curiosity about the whereabouts and the identity of Yo Mamba have been around since, at a minimum, the early days of the show. Correct. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Were you guys aware of Yo Mamba before the show? No. Yeah, maybe not. Now that I went back and watched the Memphis episodes where, you know, Mark Gulleen is introducing him in the coming week, as we've heard the, the clip you played a zillion times. But, you know, going back to that, no. So being listeners of the show, you have heard the various segments we have done, the various attempts we have made to try and figure out who Yo Mamba was. Was this something that bothered you guys, something you were curious about? Was this something you guys spent time thinking about? Tell me about your curiosity about the House of Gulen and Yo Mamba. Well, one and, of the things that I'll say is me and Steve are friends. Uh, well, I know Steve. I've known Steve before we ever listened to the podcast. So we both kind of got into it at the same time, and we're both Memphis wrestling fans. So to hear something pop up that we really were not aware of at all has kind of been an ongoing joke with us. And it's something we've, we consistently talk about this stuff. And uh, whenever, you know, we would always say like, well, if we got to meet Lawler, we would ask him about it. And we know that there are, there've been a few people that have had that opportunity, but we never saw any video or listened to anything or heard anything, or at least even heard Lawler talk about it. Correct. So when we found out the show was happening on August 2nd, uh, Northeast Wrestling was coming to our area, and Lawler was in our area for the first time, and I don't even know how long the plan was made of, uh, we're getting tickets, and the first thing we're going to ask him is about Yamamba. <laughs> well, this is an interesting thing, because like you said, people have said in the Mothership Facebook group or on various online forums that they've ran into Lawler, they've asked him about it, he didn't know anything about it. I've seen people say that they've talked to Marty Gennetti or even Shawn Michaels at an autograph signing. And again, these guys, no memory whatsoever of Yo Mamba the Jungle Savage. This guy made such an impression that no one remembers him. So we've run into this barrier where the people who were actually there and were actually involved don't know and don't remember. But like you said, I've only heard secondhand stories. No one's actually filmed Marty Jannetty speaking about this. So you guys find out that Jerry Lawler is going to be in your area on August 2nd. Where is your area? Let's get that straight. Uh, we live in the Pittsburgh area, but the show was in a suburb of Pittsburgh called Monroeville, where I actually live. Is it a wrestling stronghold, Monroeville? No, uh, no you know not what? really. <laughs> it kind of has. We we've had indies that run here throughout the years, and it's some of the more known ones like IWC in Pittsburgh. Um, but Monroeville is a big. It, it out of all the suburbs in the city, Monroeville has a huge business district, so it's easy to get to from anywhere in the city. And it's it's it has a bunch of buildings that you could run a wrestling show in. So for some reason, they have had a host of wrestling shows throughout at least the last thirty years that I could remember. And this company, Northeast Wrestling, do they typically run in this building, or is this a uh, is this a new promotion? Is this a promotion that's been around for a while? What's their story? From my understanding, Sparrows has been around for a few years. They get big names. Um, they haven't come to this area at all, to be honest. It seems like it's more maybe where you are, Brian. Oh, is that the Northeast but, Wrestling from over here in upstate New York? Yeah, pretty oh, sure. Uh-huh. Because it was over by Pittsburgh. I didn't even think it was the same one. Okay, so I do know them. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the first time they came over, I'd say, this far west of the, of the state, you know, Pennsylvania. So. 
we tend to be secondary. Like there's that whole section <laughs> of like, you know, Jersey and, and random places in New York and Philadelphia. Like you see places that kind of run that as a loop. And for some reason, well, I know the reason because of the distance, but Pittsburgh somehow sometimes gets included to that. And then sometimes not at all. Well, perhaps if you guys could field the winning baseball team, more people would be willing to come. <laughs> no, 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 no. Listen, I just kid. I kid. <laughs> kid. But uh, Jerry Lawler has worked for Northeast Wrestling, I believe, many times in the past. It's a regular for him uh, in the summer right. months, I believe, that he goes up and works for them. So now here they are in Pittsburgh. You find out Lawler is going to be there. You guys decide right away that you're going to do this? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> as soon as I bought the tickets, uh, Ed has his Yamamba shirt. I have my 605 shirt. I'm like, this is the first thing we're going to do. <laughs> yeah, we started hatching the plan out pretty much right away. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I don't know if you guys have heard on Kentucky Fried Wrestling, but there was an incident where Scott Bowden <laughs> snuck up on Mil Moscaris with a secret tape recorder oh, yeah. and tried to get him to mm -hmm. indicate that he was, in fact, in Memphis in January 1979 as a heel on the losing end of a match and did a stretcher job. So we've seen wrestlers under surveillance. This isn't that. You have the camera out. Jerry no. Lawler sees that you guys yeah. are filming this. So the filming aspect of it, the documentation, that was part of the plan from day one? Yeah, Ed, no. Ed didn't have it hidden in his pocket. But it, you know, what happened was, is, uh, so we, we went and met Jerry and, you know, the typical meet and greet stuff. We got our pictures taken with him and everything. And then we proceeded to ask him, well, Steve started asking him about Yo Mamba. And I had the yeah. shirt on and I kind of chimed in and said, Jerry, I'm just listening in because, you know, look at my shirt. I'm interested. I, I'm invested in this, so to speak. And uh, <laughs> he, he seemed confused, but he didn't totally just brush us off or anything like that. And he says, you know what? There's only two people I would know uh, that would know this. And his handler said, and this, this cracked me up. He goes, Jeff Baldwin would probably know. And we go, nope, we know that Jeff already does not know. And it wasn't, <laughs> it, Jeff wasn't included. That's not who he was going to call. That's where he called the, uh, the mysterious Antonio. Antonio uh, but right. literally said to us, hold on a second, come around my table. I'm going to make a phone call and then proceeds to tell about 30 people. Hey guys, hold on one second. And as soon as he was fussing around with his phone and I realized it was going to happen, I said to myself, you know what? Just start recording. Who cares? Like he's not, he's probably not going to say anything. He's been super cool. We're at a show. It's not like I'm in the bathroom or anything where it would be intrusive. So I figured what the hell, let's record it and see where it goes. And then you guys see the result of that. So who was actually recording? Me. That Ed would be me. Ed is recording. Yeah. Yep. Ed is recording. Steven, you're standing there in your 605 shirt. By the way, thank you guys yes. for representing the show with the Yo Mamba and the 605 shirts. I do appreciate <laughs> it. And oh, absolutely. Jerry Lawler gets up. There's a line of people. You could see them in this video. There's a line of people standing around waiting for their autograph. Lawler gets up. We're going to play some audio here. And then uh, we'll talk about it on the other side. You guys can tell me exactly what was going on here. Let me play this. <laughs> Antonio, where you at, man? All right, listen, I got a long line of people here waiting to get an autograph. I'm right outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Monroeville, and I got a quick question for you. I'm going to put you on speaker so we can hear you. Hang on. All right, Antonio, 
have you ever, do you ever remember a wrestler we had in Memphis called Yo Mamba? The Jungle Savage was his. Yo Mamba, the Jungle Savage. Y O M A M B A. <laughs> what was the guy's? Mark Gulen was supposed to bring him in. Yeah. There, there was a guy named Mark Gulen that brought him in, supposedly. You, you remember him? I don't know if he ever showed up, to be honest. Well, they're saying they might not. They may have. We may have just plugged him on TV, and he might not One have even week, showed and he up. Never showed up the next week. So, who was it supposed to be? Yeah, well, he he must not have shown up. So, so we didn't know, or you wouldn't know who who it was going to be. No, not at all. Well, the mystery continues, I guess. Yeah, okay. All right, Antonio, listen, I'll talk to you when I get back in town, okay? Well, there it is. The mystery certainly does continue. First of all, gentlemen, let me ask you this. You were standing there, you were filming, and, of course, Stephen, you were standing there. You're listening to Lawler, you're watching Lawler. I know the great historians for Memphis Wrestling. If I needed an answer about Memphis Wrestling, I would call Jim Cornette. I would call Scott Bowden. I don't know this Antonio. Who is Antonio? Do you guys have any idea? Do not know. We do, so, but I'll tell you, this. It, we, we know what his last name is, but we just, that's not anything that was shown to us or given to us to like tell everyone. But I can tell you, I've heard, just like you said, Brian, I would have, that's exactly what I, I would have expected too. So I have no clue who Antonio is. But as of what, say 30 minutes later, you'd say, Ed? 25 minutes later, the handler comes and yep. the guy who's running the autographs comes over and grabs us, finds us, brings us back. And this Antonio finds the card. And I posted that picture in the mothership, uh, that, that thread where the video was posted of Yo Mamba spelled terribly wrong <laughs> and T. Joe Khan versus the Midnight Rockers for that Monday night, which never happened. So he did produce the actual flyer. Yep. Which was and it was I and I forget the date specifically, but I do remember it was November of '87 because we were kind of was, trying to line up dates and everything. It was probably November 30th would be the Monday because the 28th is when the TV show, the weekly show, is when Mark Gulen introduces you know T. Joe Khan coming out of the water. He jumps around and runs around like a maniac, and then says about how you know Yamamba is coming in the coming week and all that. However, and you said that his name is terribly misspelled here in the program. And of course we're talking about the uh, mysterious Antonio Memphis wrestling's most mysterious historian who sent in this program, <laughs> midnight rocker, Southern tag team title against yo Maba and T Joe cons. Y O M A B A for the record. We don't really know for sure what Mark Aline said there. I mean, technically he could have said yo Maba. And it uh, sounds right, yeah, very possibly. similar to Yo Mamba. We, you know, we could have we could have been the ones having it wrong the whole time. <laughs> and, well, actually, and it's funny because the one thing that Jerry said when we were talking to him, he was, you know, we were kind of giving him details and 
he was, I mean, he was definitely like pontificating on everything. Like he wasn't like just humoring us. He was, he seemed to be interested and curious about what we were talking about. And then he even said at one point, he goes, you know, the one thing, like this totally sounds like a joke or a rib, like something we would have just did goofing off on TV. And then whenever we told him about the further information and everything, that's what piqued his interest. And he was kind of like, wait a minute, I don't think this is a joke. <laughs> well, I got I got further research, though, on the, the, the week after December 5th, 87 show, Lance Russell interviews the Midnight Rockers. And he yep. does he does say Yo Mamba to them ah. that they're going to fight them. And, of course, Marty jokes. Oh, your mama and the crowd laughs and whatever, you know, but and by the way, say, I think I think you guys made a mistake by giving a possible lead and saying that we don't know if he really showed up. I feel like you may have put that in Lawler and the mysterious Antonio's <laughs> head before they had a chance to pontificate truly on whether or not they know who your mama was. I think the thing that really kind of sunk it into them was. Like, they didn't really know what this was or what to make of it. But then once they found the program, that's when it was like, wait a minute. Well, something happened. There was, the, you know, this is some sort of proof that something happened. Not saying that your mom ever showed up or anything, but there was a match that happened that is intertwined with this whole mystery. Now, like I said, it might have been no one. It might have been just, you know, the typical Midnight Rider gimmick where somebody comes out in a mask and they're painted up or so. Who knows? But to have no video, no pictures, and seemingly no one has a recollection of this is very strange, to say the least. So this is part of what makes me still intrigued by the whole thing. However, let's not forget, let's not forget, Mark Goline has indicated that it did happen and he knew who it was. And Terry Garvin Sims well, said he did know who it was, as in it did happen that one night in Memphis. Well, Jerry didn't seem to even remember Mark Goulin, actually, but yeah, it did spark something where he wanted to go back on the TV, the Memphis TV, and rewatch it. He even said to him, to us, just to see, you know, this guy being listed or being announced. Now, of course, a lot of the stuff you see on YouTube is the Evansville feed, so they promote Wednesday shows instead of the coming Monday show. So when they go to Lance in the back and he's promoting the shows, you never get that announcement of, you know, your mama's wrestling on Monday night, you know, at least now one thing, I can find. Now, one thing that we were talking about with this too, is how you mentioned the feeds and Jerry said about, you know, I, I want to go back and watch some of the tapes that we're doing for the classic wrestling show that we're recording, which is the one that I've seen him host with Dundee. Yeah, uh, we were curious what the source of his tapes is. Like, where is he getting the footage from? Any old jerk who has tapes. He's <laughs> <laughs> probably the source for those tapes. But uh, most let's, likely, let's say, let's uh, address that right there. You hear a lot of stories about wrestlers not necessarily being kind, not going above and beyond at an autograph signing, being disinterested. Right. How would you sum up your experience here with Jerry Lawler? Amazing. I mean, the fact that he held the lineup, <laughs> we weren't, he could easily yeah. said to Ed and I, no, I don't know the name. Here's your autograph picture. Next. To go away, make the phone call, put us on speaker, and you know, try to help us figure this situation out, or this mystery, mind you, and just put, hold his finger on go, hold on, fan, you know, hold on, we'll be with you in a minute, <laughs> was just uh, astounding. I never expected that to happen, to be honest. And I honestly, I expected Jerry to be a pretty nice guy because I've heard 
you know, during, especially newer, you know, like people that met him maybe in the eighties or nineties potentially could have ran in their situation with him. But everybody that I've heard for a long, long time said how nice he was. So I pretty much expected him to be as such, but to have him go above and beyond the way that he did. And, you know, right. this is the first time me or Steve has ever met him. And that was really cool. And then to intertwine it with something that we really like, which is, you know, the 605 uh, kind of makes it even cooler. So it's definitely a really cool memory. And, you know, I really, right. I know it's a cliche, but I really couldn't have asked any more uh, than, than what he gave us that night. Cause it was awesome. Yeah. And I walked away, gave each other like the, the biggest high five ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> after that, after that moment, we were like so excited. Cause it was like, wow. But yeah, the mystery continues still. But the mystery continues. We tried to make a dent. Yeah, we tried. We tried. <laughs> I am very happy today to welcome back to the Super Podcast, one of professional wrestling's premier historians, and dare I say, the AWA's premier historian, none other than George Shire. George, welcome back to the show. Brian, it is always a pleasure to be on your show, and now I'm going to have to put more money in an envelope and send it to you for the kind words. <laughs> well, let's, let's, you know, do that quickly. You can do priority mail. It'll be here within three days. But George, <laughs> George, we always have a good time talking wrestling history here on the show, and we've learned so much from the various segments we've recorded with you. And there's one topic that has recently popped up on social media that I've noticed, and I wanted to know a little bit more about, and I wanted to hear what you had to say about, and that is the origin of the AWA World Heavyweight Championship, and specifically Pat O'Connor having an AWA World Championship reign or the first AWA World Championship reign. This is something that has been said on various sites, whether it's Wikipedia or other wrestling sites or various sites that do wrestling title histories, and they'll say Pat O'Connor, the first AWA World Champion. And then I saw recently on social media, you in your group wrote something about how this is a completely erroneous title history. This is not the way things went down. Pat O'Connor wasn't the first AWA champion. And I realized, you know, there's more to the story here than even I realize. And I think it's important that we do kind of crack down on who was the first AWA champion and was Pat O'Connor ever the AWA champion. So, George, you are the guy to talk to about this. I don't even know exactly where we should open this up. I guess let's start with. Did Pat O'Connor have any history in the Twin Cities before the formation of the AWA? Yes. Let me, let me go all the way back to about 1950-51. Pat O'Connor came over to the United States from New Zealand, and he got his initial wrestling training. Believe it or not, he had some from Vern Gagne. He worked with Vern. But his primary trainer, he was brought over here by Tony Stecker, who was, back in the early 50s, the Minneapolis Twin Cities wrestling promoter. Uh, Tony Stecker, his brother, Joe Stecker, was a great old pro wrestler from uh, the 40s and 30s. He held versions of the world title. So Tony had a great wrestling background, but he brought Pat O'Connor over here. And Pat got his initial training right in the Twin Cities when he's starting out as a professional. So all through the 50s, Pat O'Connor made many stops in the Minneapolis, what was then, Brian, referred to as the Minneapolis Territory. And with that, let me say that when it was the Minneapolis Territory, it was under the umbrella of the National Wrestling Alliance. 
So here in the Twin Cities, we were a National Wrestling Alliance promotion. And that promotion, you know, goes back to 1948 when Wally Carbo and Sam Muchnick and a Pinky George and a bunch of guys got together and went to Iowa. And they decided they were going to form this alliance where they would all agree on one world champion. And then the plan was, is that that champion, whoever that guy was, he'd be sort of uh, rented out all through the year to go to the various cities and defend that championship. And it was a great plan. You know, the NWA worked for the entire 50s, all through the 60s. And it was a it was never a promotion. It was just a champion, if you want to get technical. And the one other title they recognized was the junior heavyweight title. But they never had tag team champions that the NWA officially recognized. It was just the world champion. And every year, the promoters would get together at an annual convention, and they would vote and talk about where they wanted the champion to go, who they wanted the champion to be. They ended up having a general format that they usually tried to follow, and that was that whoever was their champion, they would like that guy to be champion for two to possibly three years, and that would be the run for the guy. You know that during the 50s, Luthez, he basically held the title the most often, and he was their go-to guy. Whenever there was a problem, they'd go back to Lou because he was the one guy that they could trust. He was the one guy that was the legitimate wrestler of wrestlers, and they would put the title back on Lou, or Lou would agree to take it back. He was the first recognized NWA world champion. So as we go through the 50s, Minneapolis, and again, there was no AWA, but it was promoted first up until about 1954 from, by Tony Stecker, Minneapolis. And Eddie Williams had the promoter's license in St. Paul, though he worked with Tony Stecker and it was out of the Minneapolis office. As we get to the later 50s, Tony had passed away about 1950. I got to look at the date, 1955-ish. He passes away. His son, Dennis, takes over the Minneapolis territory, along with Wally Carbo who was the matchmaker at that point in time. And Wally is still part of the NWA. He is a founding member of the National Wrestling Alliance. The big star in the Minneapolis territory is Vern Gagne through the 50s, because after all, he's from the Twin Cities. And he was a national star in those days. I mean, Vern wrestled, you know, before he settled down with his own promotion later, he was all over the country. Wherever Vern wrestled, on the old, on the old uh, Dumont television network, where he, along with guys like Gorgeous George and Killer Kowalski and Hans Schmidt and Buddy Rogers, they became these big household names while Vern was among that group. And in fact, the U.S. title, when Vern had it during his period of time, was in many ways treated like the world championship, and that even though he was the U.S. champion, he went from territory to territory defending that title as opposed to the yeah. world heavyweight championship. Yes, and I'll explain that too. There's a little there's a little quip in there about that how that'll come together. So during the fifties, though Vern Gagne and Luthez were good friends, mutual respect for one another, neither of them ever really wanted to put the other one over. And it was just the way it was behind the scenes. Lou did not want to put Vern over. Why? 
I wish I could go back and talk to Lou because I would have loved to have his version on it. But then the storyline continues throughout the 50s that Vern was too small because he had held the junior heavyweight title in the early 50s, recognized by the NWA. And the, the storyline kind of continued that Vern was too small to be considered a heavyweight. And Lou was never going to put him over. Well, as we get to the, we're gonna, well, let's go to about 1957. You'll recall that there was the controversy in Chicago, and this was also blessed by the NWA, we find out later. But there was the controversy in June of 57 when Edward Carpentier defeats Lou Thez in a one-fall match because Lou couldn't continue. And there were some promoters that were actually recognizing Carpentier as the NWA champion with the NWA's blessing. Yeah. Well, Lou Thez, of course, was still the official champion. Their reasoning was it was not a two out of three fall match, and that's the reason that Carpentier didn't have a legitimate claim. Now, what happened in that particular match is one of the promoters that went crazy with recognizing Carpentier as the NWA world champion was Joe Dusick out of Omaha, Nebraska. And Joe started recognizing him as the world champion. You flash forward, and, and let's add that eventually Lou and Edward, they had another match and the controversy was cleared up. But in the meantime, Joe Dusick's claim in Omaha goes a year out into 1958, and guess who wins the title? Vern Gagne. And he's now recognized as the world champion. But by this time, that NWA part had been dropped from the Joe Dusick promotion. It was basically Carpentier was the world champion. He dropped it to Vern Gagne. Now what they did here, Brian, and this is where this United States title thing gets confusing. In Omaha, Vern was actually recognized as world champion with no NWA or certainly no AWA designation to it because the AWA wasn't even thought about yet, at least the Midwest version. Many, many, many years earlier, there had been an East Coast faction that was the AWA, but that wasn't connected at all. Right. So in the Omaha version, here's Vern as the world champion, and he's recognized on the Omaha cards and surrounding cities as world champion. But at the same time, he did hold the United States championship. And what was interesting is there were some promoters that would intermingle those two titles. And you'd have him in one city, he'd be the world champion because he had the United States belt. Other cities, he'd be the United States champion because they didn't recognize that world title claim. So for a couple of years, it got really confusing. In the meantime, behind the scenes, Vern is still challenging basically Lou Thez to put the title on the line. And he wouldn't do it. The NWA wouldn't put the match together. Now, they did wrestle six times, but the decisions were either a couple of draws or Lou always ended up with the decision some way. And Vern just wouldn't be able to get another shot. So here we are in NWA City in Minneapolis territory. And we get to 1959 and Vern Gagne, along with Wally Carbo, actually buy out Dennis Stecker's promotion for Minneapolis. And they take it over. Vern is the is the uh, primary wrestler 
Wally, of course, will be the promoter and the, the spokesperson for the company. So there's still NWA. Now, we go to March of 1960. So we're about six months out from them buying the company from uh, Dennis Stecker. And the story, the storylines in the, the wrestling programs, which uh, you and I had an off the recording talk about great programs. You mentioned uh, San Antonio. Well, in Minneapolis and St. Paul, we used to have the four-page programs. Minneapolis had sports facts. St. Paul had wrestling facts. And, you know, you bought them at the matches, and they basically told you why you were there and what the card's about and who's coming in and who's leaving and who's feuding with who, and they were just fun reading. So in the March editions of the Twin Cities programs, they start talking about Vern has issued a challenge to Pat O'Connor, who at that time was the NWA champion. And still Minneapolis is an NWA territory. He's issued this challenge. He wants Pat O'Connor to defend the title. Well, about this same time, and this is a book that folks, if you haven't purchased it, you should. It's by Tim Hornbaker. It's the, um, untold story of the national wrestling Alliance. And he goes into great detail in there about the ups and downs and the good and the bad and the ugly of the national wrestling Alliance as a, as a uh, promotion. So during this time too, in 1960, the NWA was being investigated by the United States justice department for being a, of all things, a monopoly. In other words, they were saying that, They were controlling who the champion would be and where that champion could go to, what cities he could defend in. And it was really getting to be kind of hairy. So the NWA, Sam Muchnick, he was at the helm. He said, you know what? We're going to give up Minneapolis as an NWA territory, a city. And Vern Gagne at the same time said, I will take it over. We We will resign from the NWA. So while this is going on, Pat O'Connor is the champion. And then the sports facts programs and the wrestling facts programs for Minneapolis and St. Paul start putting these stories in that Vern Gagne and Wally Carbo, with Wally Carbo being the front guy and other Midwest promoters is the way it read, have challenged the NWA and Pat O'Connor to defend the title to Vern Gagne, by the time we got to May 1st of 1960, the ultimatum went out and it's printed in the programs. I have these programs. And it was also mentioned on All-Star Wrestling TV that Wally Carbo has issued the ultimatum that if Pat O'Connor does not defend the NWA title to Vern Gagne in 90 days, They will no longer, Minneapolis, the Minneapolis Wrestling Club, will no longer recognize Pat O'Connor as the world champion. Now, I think that's where the controversy starts because people look back and they say, well, Pat was the champion and he didn't defend the title and Vern was then declared AWA champion. But it's got to be very clear that the NWA up until August 1st of 1960, was in Minneapolis. 
And at that date, the ultimatum did not get answered, which, let's be fair, it was never going to be answered because it was a fictional challenge. It was all a storyline, 90-day storyline angle to give credence to Vern proclaiming himself as the world champion. And so August 1st comes along. It's then announced in the programs that Pat O'Connor and the NWA did not answer the challenge. And Vern Gagne has been declared by Wally Carbo and other Midwest promoters as the first American Wrestling Alliance. It was Alliance in the early years. Champion. And so when people do this title history, they say, well, Pat O'Connor was the champion and he didn't defend to Vern. So Vern then became the champion and they want to put in there that Pat was the first champion, but he never was. That's as clear as I could ever make it to you. And with having the proof to show it with the programs that I have that listed all this way. So from August 1st and the official actual launch date for the AWA was actually August 16th of 1960. And the program state promoters welcome and congratulate Vern Gagne as the first recognized AWA world champion. And going forward, then Vern is the owner of his own company and he promotes the AWA as we saw it happen through the next three decades. Well, a few questions for you coming out of this, George. And obviously this is a period of time where there's a lot of Interesting title claims. Obviously, the Carpentier one is a big one because it wouldn't get settled really in a lot of ways for a long time. I mean, the WWA in Los Angeles, that championship technically comes out of the Carpentier claim. And then, of course, that would later lead to Dick the Bruiser's WWA World Championship in Indianapolis, even though it was different than the LA WWA. They pretended like his WWA reign in LA never ended that he just took that title back to uh you know indianapolis so i always am fascinated by these alternate title histories and some of the weird claims that are out there we just talked on the john arezzi podcast about killer kowalski defending the nwa title in texas in i think 61 62 when buddy rogers hurt his ankle so there's another interesting one well and here's the thing and here's the thing and you bring up a good point with the killer kowalski Buddy rogers angle Buddy Rogers was out of action for a short time with a, with a broken ankle or a bad ankle, whatever the story was. It was listed as being a broken ankle. So Houston promoter Morris Siegel at the time, and Houston, you know, they ran weekly cards every Friday night, rain or shine, all year long, except on Christmas. That was the only time they never ran a card, or Christmas Eve. They never ran a card if it was on a Friday night and Christmas Eve. But otherwise, Friday night, they were like clockwork. So Morris Siegel, and again, I have the whole series of programs that go through this spell where Rogers broke his ankle. They are recognizing Killer Kowalski out of the match with Rogers as the world champion, the NWA world champion. It listed that that way in the programs. And here we have several weeks or several programs where Kowalski is actually defending the title. Basically a title he never had. But what people don't want to realize is that that too was done with the blessings of the NWA that Kowalski was filling dates, though he never got official recognition from the NWA itself. The promotions that used him as the champion, you know, you try to tell a fan who attended wrestling in Houston, 
that they didn't see the NWA championship on Killer Kowalski because they were there. They watched it. And again, I have the programs that show that this really happened. So when Rogers comes back to action, then him and Kowalski, they do have this match and it's cleared up and Morris Siegel's claim disappears and Rogers isn't there for a while. And, you know, and what's interesting about that is that in that era of wrestling, you know, be all this pre-internet and the promoters could get away with highway robbery because the fan in the next city, 200 miles away, never knew what happened. We didn't have news that traveled back in those days. So this kind of stuff happened all the time. You know, the NWA did this with another double title thing out in San Francisco when they had Leo Namalini as the champion, the NWA champion. The programs, you know, specifically state that he held the title. The NWA itself will never acknowledge that he was their champion. And that's when Lou Thez was champion as well. It was another offshoot from beating Thez. And eventually that claim just disappeared. But if you want to be real about it, in that instance, those fans in the Bay Area, they saw Leo Namalini as the NWA world champion because those programs specifically said he beat Thez and he was defending the title. That Minetic right there really lays it out. So when these guys had their claims, it wasn't just them. It was the promotions behind them. The NWA okayed it. And they literally defended the NWA World Championship on various shows. And they would do it, you know, the promoters. And again, because they could get away with anything in those days with the fans in the next town or next city or next state, never having even the clue that it happened, they could pull it off. And then, you know, the, the other thing about wrestling promotions in the kayfabe era, God bless them but they always only wanted fans to remember what they wanted fans to remember. And if they didn't bring it up again, or they later on said it didn't happen, you know, then the fans were, okay, I guess so. You know, I mean, believe it or not, fans were that way. You know, you talked about the bruiser taking the WWA title, and that was another offshoot of that Carpentier thing, because during the time that he was champion, allegedly by the NWA, which they never said he was, he was defending that title. The WWA was formed out of that title. And when it eventually floated along and it was the destroyer, Dick Beyer, that held it after he beat the bruiser. And the bruiser decides he's going to go to Indianapolis and him and Wilbur Snyder are buying that territory, taking it over from uh, Barnett, uh, Jim Barnett and... Uh, Johnny Doyle. Uh, Johnny Doyle, thank you. It was I was going to say Johnny, and then they're taking it over from them, and he just brought the WWA title back, and the Bay Area doesn't have their title anymore. The Destroyer had it, but there were two versions for a while, neither of them being the same one. George, before we wrap things up, I do want to clear up one other thing with you, because you laid out a history there in terms of the timeline of Wally Carbo and Vern Gagne buy out the Steckers, or, or Dennis Stecker at this point. Dennis Stecker, yeah. And the AWA is formed. It is the relationship that Sam Mushnick and Wally Carbo had and would continue to have for many, many years that would lead to the Minneapolis wrestling company leaving the NWA and forming the AWA to get around the consent decree to show that there isn't a monopoly. 
a lot of people, when they talk about Vern forming the AWA and his first title run and the majority of his title runs, the story they lay out is Vern couldn't get the NWA title. The NWA wouldn't okay it. So he started his own promotion. So I guess in laying out the history you have today, that really dispels that myth as well. Well, it dispels it, but it's also true, Brian, in the sense that Vern Gagne, you know, whether it's right or wrong, Vern legitimately felt he should have gotten the NWA title. And, you know, I would never argue against that because of all of the wrestlers, Vern was a true wrestler in the sense of a wrestler. You know, he could shoot, he could hook, and he was a wrestler first. He didn't believe in gimmicks. You know, which is kind of surprising because that would have been one of the reasons that he should have been really close and in Lou Fez's pocket because Lou didn't agree with that stuff either. Lou never liked working with with a performer, as he called them. Any wrestler that had a gimmick, he called him a performer and not a, not a wrestler. But Vern legitimately had the credentials, being the amateur champion he was, you know, with the University of Minnesota, and he represented the Olympics as an amateur. And all of, well, then you look at all of the hundreds of guys that he brought into the business, training them to be a wrestler first. And if we need to give you a gimmick, we'll do that down the road. But that was his formula. And so people say, well, Vern did this because he wanted to be the champion. It still comes out of that NWA monopoly situation. And this is why I said you should read, everybody should read Hornbaker's story on this in his book, because it really tells it the way it was with the NWA. What had happened too, is that there were all of these promotions around the, or these uh, promoters around the United States that were members of the NWA that would attend the annual meetings. I'm going to do a sidebar here and tell you that all through the 50s and 60s, or all through the 60s, even after Vern and Wally pulled out of the uh, NWA, both of them retained their membership in the NWA, and they both attended the annual meetings, and they would also have a vote when the NWA would talk about changing their champion. So when they were going to change from, you know, Kaniski to Dory Jr., or from Junior to Harley or Frisco and however it went, Vernon Wally had a, had a say in that. They had a vote. They always retained their membership. One last question for you, George. When you look back on this period of time, do you think it would have been a better move to go with Vern Gagne instead of Dick Hutton when they went with Dick Hutton? I would say yes, but that was one thing I did talk with Lou says about very briefly one time. You know, he was the one that was adamant about, he wanted to drop the title in 1957. Lou did. He wanted to drop the NWA title. And he picked Dick Hutton, correct? He did. He adamantly said, I want to drop it. I need a rest. And I I would like to give it to Dick Hutton. And Dick had all the credentials too. Let me point this out. Dick Hutton actually beat Vern Gagne in uh, amateur wrestling. You can look those records up. Vern and Dick were very good friends and Dick Hutton was his guy, but the the only problem was, and I guess the attendance records tell the story for some reason, Hutton just didn't have the charisma that the eventually the NWA wanted when he'd go into different cities. We saw Dick Hutton in Minneapolis. I saw him in 19, uh, I'd have to look at the program. He was here in 58. He defended the title. But um, 
Yeah, I think if they'd have went with Vern, it probably would have been a better deal because I think Vern would have drawn. But I think at that point in time, by 1957 and 58, I think Vern Gagne already had his eyes on the Minneapolis territory because he realized he could get his foot in the door. And he was already, you know, by the later 50s, he was already calling a lot of the shots anyway. And so it was just, it was all working together. You know, it's the old story, how everything has to come together and then it happens. And with the NWA just agreeing to give up the the territory, it made sense. Vern made himself the champ and they had a good storyline to go with it. But even with us talking about this and however many listeners that you will have that will hear this, we will still never end the story that Pat O'Connor wasn't the AWA champion because he never was. But he was the champion in Minneapolis. Just not AWA. And now it is time for Book of the Week. Book of the Week? Book of the Week. And you heard he said his, Book of the Week. And you heard his voice right there. That is none other than the Booker Man himself, Jeff Baldrin, the host of Breaking Cafe with Baldrin and Barry, and now a two-time author. Two times. Two times. Just put out his recent book. They call me Booker. Jeff, welcome back to the show. They call me Booker. Brian, last good Lord, it's been so long since I've been on this show, I thought people forgot me. Well, how could anyone forget you, especially when they put out a book with a giant photo of you on the cover, you with a rather spectacular mullet? I thought you were going to go for the porn stash I had then. And a porn stash choking Jim Cornette in what I would find that would be Jim Cornette's living room in Charlotte. Uh, let me just say that I was slightly less fleshy then, too. I was uh, probably good 165, 170 there. I was ripped. What is the story with the cover photo of your new book? And by the way, let's say this once again. They Call Me Booker, our book of the week, available at crowbarpress.com. Get it today. Support Jeff. Get this book. And let Crowbar Press know you heard about it right here on the Super Podcast. But Jeff, before we get to what this book actually is, what is the origin story of this cover photo of you and Jim in his living room in Charlotte? Well, the origin of the cover story is I thought originally the cover photo, uh, as I uh, talked to Scott, was going to be a uh, sort of a triangle of three guys that I really featured in the book, which were uh, Owen Hart, Buddy Landell, and Brad Armstrong. And then, of course, Scott decides, uh, because he's the editor, that he's going to put this photo that I had pretty much forgotten that I, that you know, I sent him some photos that I suggested to put in the book. And uh, he put that one on the cover. And I was like, that wasn't supposed to be the cover. Uh, that picture was taken, as you said, in Cornette's living room. I was there with Mr. Uh, Mr. Meltzer. We visited uh, Jimmy, I want to say, uh, maybe 87 uh, for the, uh, the Kraken Cup uh, tournament. And, uh, had a good time just hanging out at his place uh, and had the Chagusa Nagoyo t-shirt that is obstructed by Jimmy's arm. So, uh, you know, but that we just happened to be visiting Jimmy that day. For the record, the shirt is obstructed by the tennis racket, which is being held by you. <laughs> Jimmy's arm is nowhere near your shirt. I tried to, I tried to pass the blame, you know, Boy, what a year you had from Crockett cup, 86, the Crockett Cup 87. Crockett Cup 86, on a whim, you fly out to New Orleans, you meet Jeff Steele, you get turned on to the Observer, your life changes. Crockett Cup 87, you're in Jim Cornette's living room. You know, I, I, I 
got rid of the uh, first wife and my life completely changed. That was the key <laughs> moment in my life, I think. So you're advocating for divorce. You're advocating that our listeners look into divorce. Hopefully my wife in the next room is not hearing this part of the uh, the conversation. So my wife just yelled she's ignoring this part of the conversation. Well, she's a wise lady, of course, Miss Baldrin. But Jeff, let's talk about this book. They call me Booker. This, of course is a collection of the articles that you wrote. I don't, I don't know if articles is the right word, but a collection of the pieces that you wrote in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. And we talked about this, maybe your very first appearance way back on the Super Podcast. We talked about your reputation coming out of the Observer. You had done Baldrin the Booker, but before that you did the top 100 matches of the 1980s. You had the top angles of the 1980s. You were a regular in the yearbooks. People knew your name. You kind of had a little bit of stature to you going into this time where you end up writing this regular series of columns. What was the genesis of it? Well, the genesis, much like, you know, the podcast that I do with Barry, uh, the genesis of that show is the phone conversations that we would have talking about pretty much everything. The genesis of Bowdrin the Booker started with conversations that Dave and I would have uh, where we would sit there and usually talk about WCW and everything that they were doing wrong uh, and just simple little changes that they could make that would, you know, seemingly make a difference in their product and the way it was perceived. So I worked as an in-court clerk at the Broward County Courthouse. So I sit in trials. 95% of the trials I do are DUI trials. So how many DUI trials can you uh, listen to before they all kind of start running together? So I found myself taking a notebook out and I would sit there and start jotting down ideas. Oh, what if they did this? What if they brought this guy in? Yeah, that would be effective. And yeah, they probably need to get rid of this guy because he's his act is kind of played out and stale. And so I started writing this down and I came up with a concept of, well, let me see. Instead of just doing it like I made the book or how about it's a dream that I'm having and Ted Turner has heard about my writings in The Observer and thinks I kind of got my shit together. So let me see if we can give this guy a chance to be Booker because I've tried everybody else. And that's kind of the way the, the idea first started and first started playing off was the conversations I had with uh, with Dave and how we started, you know, thinking of different ideas and guys we could bring in that we knew were really good, but that, you know, the guys at WCW, the geniuses there had never heard of. This period of time, 1990, what were you watching regularly? Were you getting everything out of Japan within a few weeks of it happening? Were you getting what remained of what was out there, whether it was Memphis, whether it was... I don't know what else was out there in 1990, but what else were yeah. you seeing? What were you watching regularly in 1990? I was getting, I know I was getting the stuff from uh, from Japan still very regularly from Dave, and I had a couple other sources, and uh, one of which may or may not be a, uh, a host of one of your podcasts. I'm not going to drop any names there. But uh, so I was I was still seeing a lot of, a lot of stuff, and of course I would watch the WWF stuff and the in the WCW stuff when they would have something worth watching. You know, if there was a pay per view or a, or a match that I'd heard you know on TV that was especially good, or you get one of those handheld you know videos from one of the arenas that where the the match was lights out or something like that. But generally, there was a lot of frustration with some pretty bad booking that was going on, and then of course you had the Jim Hurd influence that was. Uh, pretty much putting a taint on everything that WCW was doing because, you know, why wouldn't you want to hand a, a major wrestling corporation over to a guy who had been the, uh, you know, the branch manager of a pizza hut chain in St. Louis? Because that made perfect sense. Well, going into this, obviously, there were some of your favorites on display here. Guys who hadn't yet reached their potential. Some guys who had fizzled out and were still young enough that they could have reached their potential. How did you go about putting together the roster of guys that you would be bringing into WCW and the guys you'd be rejuvenating that were in WCW again? 
your fantasy booking takes place beginning in what? Late 1990. Uh, it's actually end of August into September of 1990. And I know they had a WCW had a Meadowland show because that was the first show where I introduced uh, like a new a new character into the into this the script, if you will. I brought uh, Scott Levy from Portland into WCW because I had been getting stuff from Portland with Scott Levy being Scotty the Body. And uh, as great as Scott Levy was as Raven, at least in the mid '90s, if you've never seen his stuff in Portland in the late '80s as Scotty the Body, or as they used to call him Snotty the Body, where he would go up and he would do the uh, the co-hosting duties with uh, I can't remember who was. Who was the uh, Don announcer? Koss? Yeah, Don Koss. And, um, and he was just absolutely hilarious as the jerk, uh, you know, a-hole guy, you know, lead heel. And he was really good, but in a smaller promotion. And I'm sitting there thinking, boy, if this guy really took that character. And, of course, he ended up coming to WCW as Johnny Polo and uh, things like that. And, and I really didn't think – I thought they kind of wasted the opportunity they had with him. And when he, you know, eventually became Raven, he was a – it was a great character. But I still sit there and thought to myself how great that, you know, character of Scotty the Body was. So that was the first guy that I brought in. And then, of course – I wanted to take advantage of of guys like Brad Armstrong, who I thought was an incredible worker, but just never really got the break. And, you know, I, I've often told people that I know if if Brad could have talked the way his dad did or the way his younger brother did, you know, that ended up becoming the road dog, he, he would have been a world champion. And everyone said that Brad had an incredible personality behind the behind the camera in the dress room was was a real cut up. Everyone loved the guy. And then for some reason, when the lights came on and they threw it to Brad, he just kind of like, yeah, uh," and just didn't have the same magic that he had in the dressing room or hanging out with the guys. So I wanted to do something with Brad. So I thought, you know, one of the things that I really hated was that WCW used to always do things seemingly on the fly, kind of a, almost the way that Memphis would do a week-to-week kind of thing, whereas Japan and given the devil is due Vince McMahon, he would do stuff, you know, he would see what was going to happen six months, nine months down the road, and that's what I wanted to do. So when I, you know, started formulating the idea with Brad, I had the idea that Brad would turn, but I didn't want to just have Brad suddenly just, you know, on a dime turn. I wanted to be a slow build because, you know, wrestling, I don't know if it's you can say that about it now, but back then and earlier than that, it was, you know, it was a soap opera for men. And when you had a, a storyline that didn't just happen and boom, it was done two weeks later, when you had something that slowly built over time and it, you know, gave the uh, the real meat and potatoes to the storyline I always thought that was so much more effective. So I wanted to do that for Brad and the same thing with, with Buddy Landell and with breaking up the Four Horsemen because talking about acts or stale, I thought the Four Horsemen by that time that that act was totally played out. Once Tully and Arn left, they should have, you know, they should have just ixnayed that whole Four Horsemen thing in my opinion because it had just gotten played out and then they start throwing in all these guys, become new horsemen and I really hated that idea. So to do that, I had to eliminate the Four Horsemen. So I came up with an idea of eliminating the Four Horsemen as a group I still, you know, kept some of the guys that were there, but I just didn't want to have them as a group. And that enabled us to bring in a new sort of uh, faction, uh, a new group of lead heels. And, of course, it'd be nice to say, well, Ted Turner's, uh, Ted Turner's money I can bring in, oh, you know, Hulk Hogan or somebody like that. So I had to put it in with a with an idea that, you know, I got to be reasonable about this, okay? Uh, I, I, I'd like to bring in certain guys. So – I, of course, was a huge fan of Mid-South and UWF. I don't know if maybe you do a show about that, Brian. I'm not sure if I can remember. But anyway, I loved all that old stuff. So I wanted to bring back the UWF guys because I really felt like WCW, 
and maybe it was Dusty Rhodes, maybe it was Jim Crockett, I don't know, just completely screwed the pooch when the UWF guys came to WCW back in, oh, I don't know, what was it, uh, 87, 88 or something like that? 87. And they just, yeah, they just completely ruined that idea. Well, one of the things that I'd just seen happen in Japan a couple years before was the, uh, first of all, you had Choshu's army invading New Japan, or I'm sorry, leaving New Japan and invading all Japan. And then you had in uh, summer of 87, you had the new versus now angle in New Japan, which is a very short-lived angle. But wow, was that a great superheated angle because it was something where, you know, the old uh, Jerry Jarrett line about uh, personal feuds make money or something like that. I'm sure you can tell me what the actual quote is. So uh, personal issues make money. That's what it is. And so I wanted to do something to make it a little bit more personal. So here was the UWF guys coming in, getting revenge and screwing WCW for screwing them a couple years before. That became the genesis of the idea for what would become that angle. Well, that was one of the big fantasies amongst the smart fans around sure. this period of time was not even just UWF, specifically getting Bill Watts back into the picture. And that's one of the things you ended up doing during your uh, days as a booker. Yes. And, you know, and Bill, for those that had never seen him, was an incredible, incredible heel. Not only uh, in his days in, in the WWF against Bruno, uh, but his days in Florida as a heel. And even though he'd become the consummate, you know, uh, baby face in Mid-South and in UWF as the, the guy that walks tall, uh, you know, the legendary cowboy. And I, I thought to bring him back and have now you have bitter Bill Watts that this company screwed his boys and screwed the guys that he had brought along. And now it was time for Bill Watts to come back and get revenge on the corporate suits at WCW. I just thought that was an idea that was just had dollar signs ringing all over it because you get a fired up, bitter, pissed off Bill Watts talking about corporate America. Oh, boy, that would have been great. <laughs> it would have been something. When did you first start hearing some feedback? from people inside the industry, because while this is all going on, it's not just you and other fans who are grumbling. The guys who were working in WCW were really unhappy with the booking and the direction of the booking. Um, I think the, actually it might've been Jimmy was the first person that I heard, uh, not from, but I heard about, you know, like, I think, uh, I think Dave told me one night, he said, you know, I, I was talking to Cornette and, and Cornette said that he really thought your stuff was pretty good. And, you know, again, one of the things that, I, I say in the uh, preface to the book or the forward is that, you know, this, of course, was not based on anything legitimately that could happen because you I wasn't dealing with the egos. I wasn't dealing. Now, one thing I did have to deal with was Dave would say if somebody gets injured, because I think part of the storyline was that uh, Robert Gibson actually got hurt during this time period. So Dave says you need to write a, a scenario where Robert Gibson's out. You can't use the Rock and Roll Express. So I made Tommy Rogers Ricky's partner for a time period while Robert Gibson was out. So I had to write that into the storyline. But, you know, so I had to do stuff or if somebody got suspended or, or fired from the company, I had to get rid of that guy in my storyline. But, you know, uh, so I know there was Cornette. I think after a certain period of time, I did hear something I heard from Scott Levy telling me that he really appreciated me putting him over uh, within the storyline. I thought that was kind of funny. And then I recall uh, uh, an incident where I was uh, at a WCW house show in Miami. And uh, and I think by that time, Paul Lee was working for the for the company. And uh, I started uh, saying some stuff to Paulie. I had a ringside seat. And Paulie turned and looked at me and goes, hey, I, I know who you are. You must be Melzer Stooge. So, uh, <laughs> so Paul, always good for a sharp witticism. So, yeah, so I'd heard, I'd heard a few things. And, you know, and I was getting very positive feedback, which was very much appreciated. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, 
the guys uh, that I knew that I hung out with started calling me the Booker, and and so that's you know, that's how I got the the Booker nickname, and it's it's kind of stuck with me all the years later. I still have friends of mine that call me Booker. They you know I'll pick up a phone, hey Booker, what's going on? That's what they call me. So you know, they call me Booker. Hey, a real quick aside from the story of your booking reign, and we'll talk about how it ended shortly, but. Were you really into Global when it popped up in 91? Obviously, you had some friends that worked there as commentators. You knew different people there. But also, they gave, and it was different. It wasn't exactly Scotty the Body. They brought him in as Scott Anthony. But they gave Scott Levy a chance there. They had some other young guys. They gave chances to the Lightning Kid. Were you into Global when it popped up in 91? Honestly, I can't say I was super into it. I, I did watch a few episodes, but it wasn't like, you know, required appointment viewing or anything like that. So. I wish I could say, oh, yeah, absolutely. I was told, but I, I really wasn't. You know, I, I was as I've, I've told you before, I have periods where I come in and out of wrestling, depending on you know what particularly attracts my attention. A couple years ago, I was not really watching anything. And then when New Japan came on access, I started checking out New Japan. I knew maybe three of the guys that wrestled for New Japan and I started watching and I became more invested in the product. I started watching it and getting more and more of the characters and the storylines. You know, people tell me now uh, I'll turn on I, I turned on the Raw reunion the other night and I'm literally texting people going, hey, who is this guy with uh, the long hair? You know, I mean, I just because I don't watch it. I really don't know who these people are. I wish I could say that I was one of these guys that even all these years later watches every single show every single week. I just don't because some of the stuff, quite frankly, bores me. And I, I got to be honest with you. One of the things that I was watching on the raw, raw thing I, I put on my Twitter page, I said, good Lord. I said, now I know why I don't watch this show every week. This is absolutely friggin' horrendous. What begs the question when you think of wrestling history, Leo Garibaldi or Louis Tillette or maybe Tom Renesto or George Scott, a lot of bookers don't adapt well over the years. How would Jeff Baldwin do booking in 2019? Probably completely horrible. <laughs> because I, don't, <laughs> I would probably be one of those assholes that would bring back guys from 20 years ago, like every old, you know, like Ole Anderson did, where he brought in all those guys that were 10 years past their prime. So I would completely screw the pooch. And probably what I would do is I would probably bring up all the guys. If they made me the booker of WWE, I would probably bring up all the guys from NXT because that show I do. I watch the pay-per-views. So I know those guys. But the guys on top, the Triple H and Vince Push, I don't know who these guys are. <laughs> Well, let's talk about another couple of guys who ended up being big players in your story and talk about why they were. Talk about why they connected with you and if you ever heard any feedback from them. Buddy Landell and Owen Hart. I did not get any feedback from Owen, uh, who uh, the first guy when I became a, a sheet reader and the observer, the first guy that I discovered through the sheets was Owen. And uh, he was just such an incredible talent. And I, you know, I know Owen came in briefly, I think had a brief run in WCW, but I would have loved to have seen Owen come in and really brought in with the, uh, the hoopla, I guess is a better way of putting it, that he really deserved because he, you know, he was a guy that was a, in Calgary, let's be honest, he's a big fish in a, in a smaller pond, but I just think that guy was waiting to be a star. And uh, I think if they had brought him in properly, he could have been a big star. I put him in a tag team with, a, at that point, younger, not so well-known Chris Benoit. And uh, I think Chris Benoit and Owen Hart versus the Midnight Express at that point would have absolutely been money in the bank. It, it would have just been gold. Uh, Buddy Landell, yes, I did meet Buddy later. I got to be friends with Buddy. Uh, we had our ins and outs sometimes uh, with uh, our friendship. But uh, he was a, 
a good guy, a good person. He was his own worst enemy. I think uh, pretty much everyone has, that new buddy has said that. Um, he certainly had his demons, you know, but uh, to quote a Roddy Piper line, when uh, when he was well, he was hell, and he could really give it and give it to the people. And he was a really great entertainer and just loved what he loved what he did. And, and you know, I miss I miss the fact that both guys are gone. Let's talk now about why this column ended. Why did Baldwin's run as Booker end? And also, we've heard from so many people throughout the years about Booker's getting burned out. Did Jeff Baldwin get burned out at all as a Booker? Well, you know, honestly, as much as I said that I, I had this uh, plan for down the road, uh, I was starting to get a little bit burned out on it because this was something where I was I was keeping up with it. I, I wrote a weekly column for nine months where I had to, you know, it wasn't like I was doing, you know, n- not to poo-poo what anyone does here, but I wasn't, you know, doing a column based on stuff that was going on and, and work of, of current sports or current wrestling. I was having to come up with stuff in my head, you know, and I did it for nine months. And um, friggin' Vince McMahon and the feds, man, that's what shut the column down (laughs) (laughs) because that became the lead story. And, uh, you know, Dave was writing for the national at the time. And of course, Vince and the feds became such a huge story, a huge event that that became taken up, you know, began taking up space in the observer. And, you know, Dave would call me and say, Oh, uh, I didn't run it this week because of all the stuff that's going on with Vince. And I mean, you know, I would, what, what was I going to say? Hey, Hey, what the fuck are you talking about? How can you take my stuff out? No, it's Dave's. It was Dave's sheet. I completely understood it. So what would happen is then he would run it. And so now it's like, there was some sequential problems because he wasn't running it every week. And, you know, it'd be like, you know, you watch uh, General Hospital Days of Our Lives and all of a sudden, you know, uh, the Tuesday and Wednesday show aren't there. And then Thursday you're popping up and you're trying to figure out what's going on with the storyline. And, and really, that's what happened. So, uh, you know, you, you lose that week to week, you know, uh, continuity. And so what happened, I had planned for what the finish was going to be. Not the first booker to blame the network programmer for moving the show around from one spot to another. Or a podcaster that blames a producer. Wait, what? So uh, so anyway, so Dave sort of at at some point, because the story with Vince and the feds got so big, he was running out of space. And, you know, I, I think he sort of understood that because he had stopped doing it and giving it the regular space that it deserved, uh, and warranted maybe, uh, just made the decision to sort of end it. Uh, the problem was, was that I still had a couple more weeks that I had written. I had written from the end of August of 90 all the way up to the Great American Bash at 91. And so, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, what, what is it? Uh, what's the, what's the, I'm trying to think of the line of the song. It, it's better to burn out than fade away. And <laughs> unfortunately, I, I wasn't able to burn out. I just kind of faded away. And so, uh, you know, um, but then part of what uh, we did with the book was that we wanted to come up with, a, the first of all, the full conclusion to the story. And, you know, so we were able to do that. I was able to write the book with the conclusion that took it all the way through the Great American Bash uh, with the main event that I had, I had gotten, the uh, sort of wrapping up some of the storylines and then me walking away, you know, after doing nine months as a the producer, which I, I'm sure if I actually was was the the booker for a corporation, you know, like like Turner and, and WCW, I, I'm sure I probably, you know, would have ended up uh, losing all the hair that I eventually lost. But uh, and and pretty much wanting to, you know, jump off a bridge or something because of the way that, you know, the corporation kind of eats its own, you know. So I was ready to leave. And, and you know, so it wasn't that big a deal that, that the thing was wrapped up. 
The book, our book of the week, They Call Me Booker by Jeff Baldrin, available at crowbarpress.com. There's a forward by Dave Meltzer and an introduction by Jim Cornette. Check this out today, along with lots of pictures of Jeff Baldrin through the years, running into wrestling personalities, obviously begging him to be booked. But for everything else other than our book of the week that you need, of course, you can go to Amazon for anything, whether it's books or T-shirts or music, DVDs, clothing, gardening tools, stuff for your car, whatever it is. Amazon has it. And if you're going to go there, there's only one thing to do, and that's use tinyurl.com superpod. Amazon. By using that link, you support this show without doing anything different than you would normally do, but we get a little bit of love and support for every purchase you make after using that link from our friends at Amazon.com. So, keep it in mind for all your purchases. TinyURL.com slash SuperPod Amazon. Keep it in mind, give it to your girlfriend, your wife, your mistress, your boyfriend, whoever it is that is spending your money. Make sure they use tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. Lots of other shows have links they want you to use. Lots of other shows go out there and try to give you a reason to support them. You know what? They suck. There's one show you should support, and you know what that is, because quality counts. Content that is good counts. You should stomp out banality and insipid programming and support the best. When it comes down to it, when you have to make that decision of what show to support, when it comes down to them or us, fuck those guys. guys. Support the Super Podcast. Support your Super Podcast. Hey, Jeff, before we go to the next segment, let's tell the listeners how they can find your great show, Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry, right here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, available at baldrinpod.com or iTunes, Podcast Addict, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever it is that you find your favorite podcast. Let the listeners know a little bit about the show, Jeff. Okay, we talk a little bit about everything we talk about. We like to say we break kayfabe on life, Brian. We uh, talk about sports, movies, television, pop culture, wrestling, a little bit of everything. Sometimes we talk about Barry's uh, food addictions. We talk about my ex-wives. We have stories from the courthouse. We talk about everything on Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. And with that, we conclude part one of episode 100 of the 605 Super Podcast. Tune in tomorrow night. That's right. I said tomorrow night for the conclusion of episode 100. Part two with Sean Waltman, Mike O'Hara, Fumi Saito, Jerry Gray, and the one and only Vandal Drummond himself, Kurt Brown. Plus, who knows, maybe a surprise or two thrown in there. But like I said, part two of episode 100 debuts tomorrow night. If you're someone not listening to this as soon as it downloads, disregard everything I just said. Part two is available right now. But until then, as we close out part one of episode 100, let's end with some messages that have been left for the 605 Super Podcast on the 605 Super Podcast hotline. Let's hear what the people are saying. But until tomorrow night, I'm the great Brian Last. Tallyo! Brian, my man, this is Ron Fuller-Welts at Tennessee Stud. Just wanted to congratulate you, man, on four years and a hundred episodes of the 605 Super Podcast. That's pretty amazing. But, you know, I think it took you longer to get out this episode than it did for me to buy and sell Knoxville, man. So, um, 
I just wanted to congratulate you. What a wonderful job you do. And uh, we're all fortunate to have someone that does what you do. Brian Lass. Hey, it's Roy Lusher. Uh, 100% Riddos here. Hey, I wanted to call and see if you had contact info for Yo Mamba, the Jungle Savage. Um, I was talking to the guys, and uh, we all came to a decision to give him the uh, the biggest award at Cauliflower Alley next year. So um, if you have his contact information, can you please give me a call back and let me know? Oh, and congratulations on episode 100, by the way. Keep up the great work, Brian. Talk to you soon. Bye. Hey, Brian Straps. Hey, let me know when this 100th episode is going to be kind of coming out because Cornette bugged me about doing some of this Kenny Olivier art. He has some ideas about some new jazz hand art. So uh, give me a holler, man. Hey, all you skull fuckers out there. This is Primetime Amy Lee. I'm just giving a big shout out to those motherfuckers at 605 Super Podcast on their big 100th anniversary. How fucking orgasmic is that? Anyway, you pricks, bring me back on your show. Just because I'm retired and not skull fucking on a daily basis doesn't mean I'm still not motherfucking entertaining. So bring this old grizzly diva fucking ass kicking wrestling that loves her Jack Daniels back. Or else I'm going to hunt you down and you won't make it to your 100th and one episode fuck faces. Love you motherfuckers. Peace out and keep the skull fucking on. Hey, Brian, it's Jason Accarato. I've been updating the wiki quite a bit lately, and I know I've messaged you umpteen billion times over the last couple months, but I just wanted to know, do you have any idea of when episode 100 is coming out? I've updated the page for it about 67 times in the last six months. My fingers are starting to bleed. My dogs need to be fed. Please, just let me know. Hey, Brian. Brian Lass. This is Bobby Blaze, man. Hey, Brian, listen. Where's the fucking show at? I keep seeing stuff on Twitter, social media, you know, uh, episode 100 is going to come out soon. I haven't even uh, seen it, so where the fuck's the show? And, and uh, more importantly, it's episode 100. Why the fuck am I not a guest on there? I've left, continue, I've left several messages, man. Listen to me. It's Bobby Blaze. You know my number. You know how to reach me. I'm not begging to be on a fucking show, okay? All I'm saying is it's episode 100. I can't wait for the drop so I can hear it. But also, hey, if you got, you, you know, just whatever. Give me a call back. Thanks. Have a good day. Or fuck you. I don't care. Either way. All right. Whatever, Brian. Thanks. Good luck on the show, man. I hope episode 100 goes great. Congratulations to the 605 and Arcadia Vanguard. Let's keep up the great work. Have a great day. Bye. Brian, Tom Burke here. Hey, listen, you're stuffing the net with this 100th episode of 605. This is just what I expected from you on Thanksgiving Day. You pencil neck pilgrim geek, I got to get back to my turkey dinner and enjoy the sound of 605 Super Podcasts in the background. Congratulations, Brian, you pencil neck pilgrim geek. Thank you, and congratulations on number 100 of 605 Super Podcasts. Bye. Hello, my friends. This is Stephen P. New, attorney at law, conciliary to the cult of Cornet, and I just want to say congratulations to my friend and yours, the great Brian Last, on episode 100. Not since Star Wars Return of the Jedi and its follow-up have I so anxiously awaited the follow-up episode to anything so 
Cheers to our friend, our Frank Oz, the great Brian Last, and episode 100 of The Mothership. Congratulations, my friend. Tally ho! Oh, hey, Brian. It's Lou Kippelman. Uh, look, man, I just got a phone call from Bobby Blaze. Uh, yeah, he was kind of pissed. He told me that you promised him, like, months ago that he'd be on a segment on uh, episode 100 of the 605. I don't know how he got my phone number. Uh, Bobby Blaze has ways, I guess. Uh, call me back. Thanks. Tally-ho. Hey, Brian, it's John Arezzi. I know you've been working on episode 100 and you're just about done with it, but, man... I finally, finally got through to Leno, and, and I think Dr. Mike uh, would be a great addition to it. I mean, he's into it. We could put it together. He wants full credit. He wants producer's credit. So that's the only stipulation, but I think we can get Dr. Mike to, uh, uh, to participate in episode 100. But you've got to make sure that he gets a full producer's credit for the show. All right, man, thanks. Call me back. Hey, Brian, this is the late Dan Farron, and I want to congratulate you on episode 100 of uh, 605. For a while there, you know, I, I thought by the time this episode was finally released, I actually would be the late Dan Farron. But thankfully, you released it just in the nick of time. And I want to thank you for all that you've done for me and for everybody else here. You're much like Billy the Kid. You know, you've taken a bunch of ne'er-do-wells, and you've made us famous. So this is usually the part of the call where you say, congratulations on 100 episodes. Here's to the next 100, but come on, man. We know that none of us are going to be around for another 200 years for you to complete another 100 episodes. I'll be lucky to make it to episode 104. Congrats. Brian Last, it's your old pal Mark Coraluzzo. Just wanted to congratulate you on the 100th episode of the 605 Super Podcast. I'm glad you finally got around to producing it. I know you've been very busy counting your money and, you know, discovering new wings in your palatial estate. You know, Brian, I've endured a lot of hardships in my life. I've seen most of Rick Ratchet's professional matches. I've had to listen to Sex Appeal, Ronnie Steele, Mikey Steele, whatever he is, cutting promos, and God, I've even seen Gino more naked. But waiting for episode 100, well, that was worse than all of that. Here's a Carluzzo Thanksgiving for you. So Dennis would have his mom come over and his wife would make dinner for the family for Thanksgiving, or he'd go over to his sister's. He then tell him that he had a business call for a show and sneak to my house and fucking graze for two hours on all my motherfucking Thanksgiving leftovers. And all he would do is say, thanks, Miss Murray, to my mom and fucking skip town, leaving a fucking pigsty mess behind. And my mom would look at me and goes, if it wasn't for, I, for the fact I like that son of a bitch. She goes, and he's such a good insurance man. I'd have to stab him with a knife. Yo, last it's Sam. I hope everything is going lovely for you. It's uh, like, I don't even know what time it is. It's like 7 o'clock or so, but I just wanted to let you know uh, everything is up in the cloud and ready to go. So it's official. The Mid-Atlantic Championship Podcast is ready to go. And I really appreciate you and Lou and everybody working with me, homie. I really, seriously, I really appreciate it. And if the social media 
stuff is any indication, I think we got a winner. You know what I mean? We're starting hot with those three shows coming out on Thanksgiving, which, you know, <laughs> everything. You know, it's just immaculate timing. You know, the, the anniversary of Starcade. It just it doesn't get any better than that. So, and that first show, that Starcade show, that man, it's six oh five length, man. It's three hours long, but it is packed with audio clips and deep dives on everybody. This thing is crazy, absolutely crazy. So, speaking of, I know that's probably what you're doing right now. So just hit me back, you know, whenever, you know, if you ever get done actually editing the six oh five. So. You know, when, it, by the way, too, let me, give me the Iggy on when that thing's going to drop because I'm going to want something to listen to. So I may want you to hit me off with that before you put it up. And at least you're not putting it up on Thursday. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's like some, like, diabolical, like, dick-type move that the other Brian would do. But I know you're better than that. So I uh, thank you, and I appreciate that. So cool. And, uh hey, good luck. We're all counting on you. All right, hit me back. Peace. Hello, Brian. This is Bob Barnett from what was once sunny California. Um, wishing you congratulations on episode 100. You're probably neglecting your children because of it. Um, I hope you change your mind and go to Cauliflower in April. This could be the last great Lano moment. Um, I just think April is going to be nuts. It should be the epitome of... Uh, the mothership. Anyway, uh, I'll talk to you soon. See ya. Hey, Brian, it's Mike Mills, your your co-host on the Mid-South Television Review podcast. Um, one, congratulations on 100 episodes. I think I've been on two, three, maybe four of them. I can't quite remember. Um, a real quick question for you. Um, do you know when the Mid-South podcast episode is going to be ready, the next one? And then, because I'm getting a lot of questions about it, and I'm not sure how to respond. Everybody's questioning me. I'm not sure why. I don't really edit it or anything, and I don't upload it either. I don't think. I just kind of host it. But I wanted to ask you about that. And then help me out, too. I'm getting a lot of questions about the day of the week that it's on. Is it on Saturday now, or did you move it to Sunday I don't think you'd move it to Sunday because, you know, I don't really get on Twitter a lot on Sunday until nighttime. But anyway, is it Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday? When is it? Uh, yeah, get back to me because I got a lot of people asking me questions and I don't really have the answer because I'm just a co-host. Anyway, congratulations on 100 episodes. Um, thank you for all your support of booking the territory over the years and uh, the unprofessional wrestling podcast. Let me get a quick plug in there, Brian. Um, since, you know, I, I, I'm not sure when the Mid-South show drops, I want to tell people the booking the territory podcast drops the unprofessional wrestling podcast with hard body Hopper, Doc Turner, and myself drops every single Thursday and Sunday nights as of right now, as I record this in the end of 2019, but uh, get back to me about that Mid-South show and congratulations on 100 episodes of the 605 Super Podcast. The Mothership! See where this goes, baby. See where this goes, baby. One take, no edits. That is the policy of One Brother Midnight. 
Brother Midnight, 100 episode, 605 Super Podcast. Here we go, baby. All right, everybody. This is Brother Midnight talking at you right here, baby. And I am ever so excited today, baby, because it is finally here. You understand me? It is finally here. People have been talking about it for months, baby. You've been anticipating, celebrating 100 episodes of 605 Super Podcast. And finally, the day has arrived, you understand me? Finally, the day has arrived. 100 episodes of 605 Super Podcast, baby. Do you understand the magnitude of such an accomplishment, baby? Do you understand the magnitude of 100 episodes of quality wrestling analysis, baby? Quality wrestling analysis, baby. See, many wrestling podcasts have come and many, many, many wrestling podcasts have gone, baby, without ever coming close to 100 episodes. And somebody might be saying midnight. There are many, many wrestling podcasts with hundreds of episodes, baby. What do you be speaking of, baby? What kind of magnitude, baby? And to them, I say this, baby. It is relatively easy to crank out 25-minute episodes of lousy moth-ridden crap, baby. But to crank out... 100 episodes, 90-plus minute episodes of quality, intriguing, adventurific wrestling analysis. Now that is a magnitude of epic proportions, baby. And Brother Midnight's here to celebrate along with you, baby. And people been saying to Midnight, oh, you be celebrating Midnight. What are you going to do to mark the occasion, baby? Well, I don't mark any occasion, baby, but I'll take the occasion by saying this, baby. See, the, the, the Super Podcast 605, baby, attracts the finest minds in the wrestling game today and the finest minds in the wrestling game yesterday, baby. The finest minds. And people been saying to Midnight, not all those fine minds, baby, appreciate the value of Brother Midnight. Some individuals question if there is any value in what Brother Midnight brings to the program in programs previous, baby. But we understand the value of the spectacular vernacular of one Brother Midnight, baby, is how many eyeballs are going to be watching, baby, and how many, oh, let's say how many cochlea be listening, how many cochlea be tuning in to hear the babblings of One Brother Midnight Baby. And not everybody gets it, baby, but you always saddle up to your 2002 Hewlett Packer IBM Tower computer, baby. And you always click to find out what is Brother Midnight saying this time. How much babbling 
can he be doing before he gets to a point, baby? And that's the beauty of Brother Midnight. There's not always a point. There is not always a reason. We just be spewing, baby. We just be spewing, baby. The creativity means you just open your mouth and let it fly, baby. And let it fly, we will, baby. And this is 100 episodes, baby. So people say, oh, you gonna take the occasion, baby. So what are you gonna do? What are you gonna say to take the occasion, baby? So Brother Midnight put some thought into it, baby. Brother Midnight, sit down at the kitchen table, baby. We pick out a pen. We apply the pen to the Hillroy, baby. We apply the pen to the Hillroy, and then we conversate. And then we conversate. We regulate. We innovate. We dominate. We speculate. And yes, indeed, we conversate, baby. So what are we saying, baby? Well, let me say this, baby. You gotta grab some attention. You gotta focus the people's minds on yourself. You can't be sitting in a crowd and all blending in with the crowd. And at this point, inevitably, irrevocably, somebody's gonna pop up and say, hold up, uh, brother midnight. Sounds like you're launching into the no pants rant. People have heard the no pants rant, baby. They don't want regurgitation. But let me say this as one brother midnight. As one brother midnight says, baby, no necesito repetito, baby. No necesito repetito. There's a lot of this in my esophagus, baby. A lot of this in my esophagus, baby. So brother midnight says this, baby. I'm going to be Celebrating, baby. 100 episodes of 605 Super Podcast, baby. Cutting this promo as we speak, baby. Wearing nothing but a fig leaf over my crotch, baby. That's right. We gonna, we gonna enjoy life spewing nonsensory, nonsensory with nothing but an ivy on my private. With a leafy green on my bean or my jean. And someone says, hey, yeah, give me some, give me some chlorophyll on the bill, if you will. And eventually, people are gonna say, yeah, brother midnight. Brother Midnight brings value. He doesn't bring a point, but he brings value, baby. The value in the corneas that be watching and the cochlea that be listening. And we be celebrating. And Brian Last and the crew, baby, at 100 episodes of 605 Super Podcast, baby, congratulating. Congratulating the whole crew, baby. And let me make one final announcement, baby. To the fans of 605 Super Podcast, baby. Brother Midnight is making another run at the title, baby. The 605 title, baby. The 605 championship of ranting, 
raving, baby. Ranting and raving because people want to hear more, Brother Midnight. They don't want the regurgitating, baby. But as mentioned, baby, no necessito repetito, Brother Midnight. is making a run at the title. So I want all my fans and all my friends, my friend, get on the magic internet device, baby, and vote for Brother Midnight. Because we be going for the title one more time, baby. One more time. Babalific. Babalific and no pointery to the babbling, but there is value. Your cornea be listening. Your cornea is is viewing, and your cochlea be listening. Let's get the anatomy correct, baby. The cochlea be listening. The cornea be viewing. And brother midnight, baby, your next 605 super podcast champion. Baby, 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 for, for Brother Midnight, somebody praise me.